Words to the Wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes and whatnot. This month, we're talking about Brandon Sanderson's secret project for The Sunlit Man, and we'll undoubtedly touch on nearly everything up through the Lost Metal, excluding parts of Stormlight. I don't really know how you could have read this book and not have a vague understanding of something else, but we'll also be talking about all of the secret projects collectively. I will do my damnedest to keep out any spoilers about Stormlight explicitly, including some of my own thoughts about this book likely segmented into its own episode. Welcome to Words and Whiskey Short Pours, a monthly podcast where we have a fun time discussing fictional worlds and the people that create them all while boozing just a little bit. My name is Cross. My name is PJ. And we are here to talk about Brandon Sanderson's fourth secret project, The Sunlit Man. I caught myself off guard with the energy I brought to my name in that one. I wasn't expecting <laughs> it. I wasn't quite prepared. Wasn't quite prepared for that level of for that level of energy. I know the pattern for um, words and whiskey. I don't know the pattern as well, like as well ingrained in my brain for short pours. We only so, do like once a month, so it's a ish. little different. <laughs> once once a month ish, yeah. as we've laid out. Yeah, laid out previously. Yeah, the monthly ish podcast that happens whenever it needs to, <laughs> basically. <laughs> but yeah, I'm I'm very excited today to wrap up the secret projects. We're going to be talking about The Sunlit Man, obviously, the fourth secret project, but we're also going to be providing inside of this episode our ranking of the secret projects on the whole, our thoughts on whether or not it was successful as like a thing, and and just kind of discuss them at large as an idea and a a project, because I think that that's also a fun conversation to have. So, but before we go too much further, since we're not doing a devil's cut on this one, because I figure that conversation will be... It will take about the same amount of time that a Devil's Cup Plus an episode would take. We're taking our shot live on air. So cheers. Cheers. What do you have? I had Reikia. Same. Nice. Twinsies. Reikia Vodka. Unofficial official sponsor of the podcast. <laughs> Beyond that, PJ, run me through your incredible featured cocktail. So I'm really, really proud of this one. I, I'm proud of the way that it looks. I'm proud of the way that it tastes. Yeah, the whole shebang. I thought it was a lot of fun to, to put together. So I have, I've been going back and forth on names, but we landed on the Knight's Eternal Memory as an homage to the late auxiliary. It is one and a half ounces of Barbados rum, three quarters of an ounce of Campari, three quarters of an ounce of Liquor 43, one and a half ounces of pineapple juice, three quarters of an ounce of lime juice, and half an ounce of cinnamon syrup. All shaken, served over a large ice cube, and then garnished with star anise, freshly grated nutmeg, three different wheels of citrus that I brulee. I had a tangerine, a lime, and a lemon, and then a cinnamon stick that I torched. So it, it totally, totally over the top. Effectively, what this is, is a sort of spiced up jungle bird. And it's it's great. I always like my jungle birds with a little bit of extra lime juice compared to what it calls for. I think they generally call for like half an ounce. And that's mm-hmm. I, I I think if I were to make that acid adjusted pineapple juice instead. 
Mm. Um, I wouldn't need mm-hmm. to ramp up the lime, but I just want more acid in mine generally. But the spice notes coming through on the on the nose is just incredible. The torched bru- or the brulee citrus as as a garnish, it looks pretty. It's thematic. Doesn't really give a whole lot. <laughs> like it, it doesn't give aromatics. It doesn't really do much of anything. But thematically, I thought it looked cool. So, yeah, that's that one. Yum. To follow that up, I have Ectogasm from Drecker Brewing Company out of Fargo, North Dakota. We've talked about it on the show before, but it is their most accessible IPA that they distribute and it's also just very 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 incredibly solid so yeah it's an incredible beer i really really like that quite a bit delicious good choice i had a couple when i was back in minnesota so Mm -hmm. very nice all right i've got here for us something that's a little bit different or rather we kind of workshopped it together and i think there are varying degrees of success in this that i'm excited to talk about and During whenever we take an inevitable break, I will likely make a second one with some of the changes that I'm thinking to kind of compare. But I'll run you through what this is originally, and we will refine potentially over the course of this episode. So I am bringing a charred sunrise mule. So the idea being to play into this this world of canticle here that we have when the sun comes over the top and burns the edges and then you have rich vegetation underneath. And I don't know, it just felt kind of muley as we were talking about it. So I, I like the idea. What we went with here, two ounces of vodka, one ounce of ginger turmeric carrot juice, three quarter ounce dry curacao, one ounce lime juice, club soda, the top and Peshaw bitters, two dashes just on the top for a little bit of a mix up of flavor. I think that this is a successful cocktail for someone of whom wants something that is similar to what's the like orange Aperol drink that tons of people have like the like an a Aperol spritz. spritz. Yeah. 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 This this has a very spritzy vibe to it because it is very light and refreshing. This would be perfect on a summer day. And I think that the simple problem is that I thought that the ginger turmeric carrot juice was going to be too much and then I tasted it and then it was not enough ginger actually. Hmm. It wasn't nearly as spicy as I wanted it to be. Okay. So as a big change with this just in general, I would generally recommend swapping out the club soda for ginger ale. I think that that would salt or ginger. My God, what's the ginger beer, ginger beer, because that will get you, I think, to the point that we actually wanted to be with that little bit of spice. Okay. That would be one version of a fix. Yeah. And that, that's the other. That's version, my bad because I steered you away from. No, it. <laughs> I mean, I, I thought it was the right call, though, because I was like, this is going to be really probably pretty gingery and the turmeric and everything like this is a rich and complex cocktail while simultaneously being very light. Again, hot summer day. This is the perfect version of this recipe. So um, leaning into the right spritz now, idea of it, what if you went half and half ginger beer and champagne? You could. You could. I honestly, it's one of those like you'd have to try it and then you'd kind of understand what, I, what okay. the problem is because it definitely doesn't need the alcohol because that, that's got like a good level. Okay. So like that feels good. And that's the one thing that I think separates it from a spritz is that it, it is a little bit more boozy. Or but what I, what I think of that it, much vodka. Yeah, yeah. What I think I'm going to change in the second iteration is I am going to make it with whiskey and I am going to, that's it. (laughs) And because you don't have ginger beer here. 
I think that will lend, yes, because I don't have ginger beer here. I think that will lend the spice that I'm kind of looking for, or like the richness or like some other note, because that's the one, that's why it feels kind of spritzy. And spritzes generally are very light and refreshing. And like, it's not trying to be something crazy complex. And I, I expected this to be more complex. That, mm-hmm. that was kind of my, my take. I, you, you kind of had an expression of shock when I, when I mentioned the amount of carrot juice, the, the amount of juice that I poured in, <laughs> because we were like, oh, you probably just need like a splash. It's going to be like really potent. Yeah, I was thinking and like half an ounce. Shockingly, it wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. I had the curacao for a little bit of sweetness and a little bit of like orange to like round out that flavor profile because I found it, the ginger turmeric carrot to be lacking a little bit. So yeah. I should have expected meal. I really, really liked it. I should have expected it to not be that gingery like on on sort of retrospective because ginger is so aggressive like we, mm-hmm. Kaylin and i make ginger shots and they're 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 aggressive they're very aggressive and mm-hmm. like we we even dilute it quite a bit with like orange juice and pineapple whatever juices we have on hand lime juice all kinds of stuff but we'll, we'll take like two ounces in the morning each day and yeah that's that's an aggressive flavor. So I should have expected something that was already blended and kind of bottled to be a lot less intense on the ginger. But if I would have known, of course we couldn't, I would have grabbed ginger root and like grated some in as like and then shaken it and then or like added it to a syrup like because you could replace there. There are some modifications here, but I think that this is a really good start to a really good idea which is why I'm going to retry it with whiskey in the middle just to see if that is enough of a fix. Cause I think it could be like a mule, you know, you swap it out and do an Irish meal instead. But I think that swapping it out for bullet bourbon will be solid because mm-hmm. it's got some of those herbaceous and some of the sweet. And I think it'll work. So, so in a rye would be better, but I'd be curious if you could do like a, some sort of martini with it. I know it mm-hmm. wouldn't be like a straight up martini, but Liquid Intelligence by Dave Arnold, I think, yep. right? Correct? Yeah. Um, Liquid Intelligence is it, Dave Arnold. Dane Arnold. Dave Arnold. It has a glow martini in it, which is, it uses turmeric-infused gin. And I wonder if you could make like a turmeric, ginger, and carrot, I guess, gin drink out of that. I think you totally could. Like like I said, this is like the right complexity for like something nice. Um, it's just not it just needs a little bit of refinement. And again, if it were a 90 degree summer day, I would be so happy to have this in my hands. That dash of Peychaud's too on the top was exactly the like level of the two dashes. It was mm-hmm. perfect. It was just the right call. You probably could get a little bit more herbaceousness out of rocking Ango on top instead. But I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I just predominantly club soda for ginger or beer. That's that's the big swap that I would recommend. But okay, then you probably with that you probably dial back the dry curacao because that has a little bit of sweetness to it too. So you'd you'd have to dial that ratio in a little bit. But following that up, I have we came out swinging with our cocktails today. (laughs) I think so. This this was a good this is a good attempt, and I think we did again. I'm going to retry it, and I love I love the look. I, in particular, one of the things that I really like about this, more often than not, mules you put in the, the copper glasses and they don't look great. But this has a very nice color to it. Mm-hmm. And that's my only my only trepidation with changing it to whiskey is that you lose like the it'll, spritz of peel. It'll of go it, kind of gray. 
browny. Yeah. Yeah. Brown gray. And especially, yeah. and if you add ginger beer as well, that kind of muddies it even more. Mm-hmm. Adding yeah. kind of a green Where, aspect to it. Whereas this is a very, it's a perfect, it's it looks peach. almost like a tequila sunrise. It's like a salmon if you peachy like, color. Yeah, it's awesome. And it, again, tastes great if we weren't in fall. <laughs> yeah. This, as far as fall tiki drinks go, there aren't many. This one, mm-hmm. it screams it. It screams it with that cinnamon and everything yeah. else that you put in it. So that's very exciting. Following that up, New Anthem, Kitten Biscuit, had it on the show a number of times. We talked about Lion Cake. We talked about all the 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 whole uh, the family of yeah. beers. Yeah, and I've missed it because I haven't been home in a while to the, have some of these things. So. Would it be a pride? <laughs> no, it would be... It's a pride of lions, right? It would... Yeah, it's a pride of lions, but they're big cats, so it would be something else. Because it's not just lions, but... Herd? No, you can't no, herd cats. Like a... Ah. It's a lay of cats. <laughs> yeah. They're all napping. Mm-hmm. A nap of cats. <laughs> yeah. A nap of cats. Perfect. All right. We have so much to talk about inside of this. <laughs> Sorry. I'm very excited to get to, but I would love to start off. Let's read the, we'll, we'll go to the book summary first and then we'll talk our overall thoughts, I think, and then kind of move from there. So do you want to read the summary? Of course I do. <laughs> my, uh-huh. my great strength of reading things blindly out loud. <laughs> <laughs> Years ago, he had comrades in arms and a cause to believe in. But now he is. Er, but now the man who calls himself nomad knows only a life on the run, forced to hop from world to world in the Cosmere whenever the relentless night brigade gets too close. Nomad lands on a new planet and is instantly caught up in the struggle between a tyrant and the rebels who want only to escape being turned into mindless slaves. All under the constant threat of a sunrise whose heat will melt the very stones. Unable to understand the language, he can can he navigate the conflict and gain enough power to leap off world before his mind or body pay the ultimate price. Bam. Love it. I you know, you hit me with the premise of the story, and I'm like, this sounds so fucking good. Mm-hmm. And I think that we should just jump off with our overall thoughts. PJ, how did you feel about this book on the whole? I loved it. I unilaterally, like almost every single aspect of it was appealing and intriguing and gripping for me. Okay, cool. I I love that. <laughs> this is especially interesting because I can't tell you the number of YouTube videos and other folks that I've seen talk about this book that are like, I wonder what someone who hasn't read Stormlight thinks of this, right? Which is a big, a big deal. And a lot of people are supposing and like creating suppositions for people in the way that they might think of it or the way that they might overcomplicate it or like how well Brandon does explaining certain things. We'll talk about those specifics Mm -hmm. later for sure. But it's good to hear that you loved it. If my like particularities make me like the perfect audience for it and if someone who maybe doesn't have the the want for the nitty gritty (laughs) would feel the same way yeah so i want to i want to like throw in my a little bit of weight here so a we're going to try to steer clear of 
anything that's Stormlight spoilered that's not mentioned in the book. We will not talk about, for instance, even though the name is mentioned, Kaladin at all or or Bridge Four. I'm going to release a separate, shorter diatribe, probably, that will be, you know, about my thoughts about those things. And I want to clarify, I loved this book for different reasons than PJ does. And what sucks is that I also can't talk about them (laughs) with PJ here. So this is going to be more of an interview than it typically would be, because Mm -hmm. there are things that I absolutely adore about this book. I and um, I, I love it. And we don't need to rank the secret projects right now. I think it is my, quote, least favorite quote of the Cosmere ones. But we're talking these are some of still some of the best books that Brandon has written in my head, period, like mm-hmm. that I've read. So, yeah. yeah, I don't know. That's we'll, we'll talk. We'll rank. We'll rank them specifically later. I've I've stood on my rating of like this is like an eight or an eight and a half somewhere in that space in my head. I loved yeah. it. Absolutely loved it. If if anybody else can uh, somehow dig into the audio files and see our video right now. You'd be able to see <laughs> that I have all of the Stormlight Archive I'm... in in hardcover that Crossland mailed to me. And then I mm-hmm. have the Way of Kings leather bound and signed by Brandon. And I haven't read mm-hmm. any of them. <laughs> Which book did you get personalized? I totally have forgotten. Did you get um, you got Lost Metal personalized? I got Lost Metal personalized, yeah. Got it. Okay. Yep. Cool, cool. That's awesome. I I'd forgotten. I've got Warbreaker. Yeah. I I had an interesting thought this afternoon that I kind of wanted to pass by before we maybe start talking about the specifics. But I came to realize when I was driving to my parents' house before we recorded this and trying to see maybe if my book had arrived so that I could pick it up and like have my physical copy here to take photos with for our cocktails, that in a way, unless there are more one-offs and a launchress specifically the Elantra sequels, maybe the Warbreaker sequel. There's only one, what I would call, true fantasy book left in Brandon Sanderson's plan for the Cosmere. As opposed to, like, a blend of sci-fi fantasy? I I mean, I think that they will all be sci-fi fantasy, but there's only one, or sorry, there are three. There's the two Elantra sequels, then there's the end of Stormlight. And that will be kind of the end of the fantasy era of the Cosmere, which is fascinating. That is. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe that Warbreaker sequel. He hasn't said whether or not it will actually happen. He's kind of worried if there's any book that he says that he's going to lose. It's probably that one. But that is interesting. So you don't think the Mistborn era three and four will be true fantasy? I think that we are already skating away from that pretty hard. Era 2 still has some fantasy feel to it. Here's the deal. I don't think that we will ever escape there being some fantasy influence, but I think we are skating very quickly towards sci-fi, much harder. Not hard sci-fi, for the record, uh, but we are skating towards sci-fi much faster. Okay. Isn't isn't one of the sort of premises of sci-fi being within the realm of futuristic possibilities as far as technology goes, as opposed to relying heavily on a magic system that doesn't exist within our universe. 
Yeah, it's it's sci fantasy for sure. Like that's that's what it is. But it the tone of the novels is changing to science fiction. Okay. Like that is that is the shift that I'm seeing. You know, like think and, thinking about fantasy trips, things like prophecies, things like you know, like that is being abstracted <laughs> and kind of pulled out yeah. as, as we move forward. And that's fine. For the record, um, it's that, just that something to reckon like, with. Hypothetical. That was a genuine question of like the definition oh, no. of science yeah. fiction. Like, does it does it presuppose that you're yeah. within the world's universe with its physics no. and laws? Not necessarily, because like think about like hard science fiction, speculative science fiction, general science fiction, sci fantasy. Right? Like those are all those are all things. Star Wars is still science fiction. It does not suppose other things but it is it does obviously have fantastical elements dune similarly like each of these things are still science fiction science fiction to me the definition of science fiction vaguely as a category is has more to do with it being future looking than anything else like technology that is outside of the current capability or things that are outside of the current capability versus fantasy is generally evocative and this isn't universal, of course, but it's generally evocative of a period in time or of inexplicable things that are outside of our earthly command. Okay. Fantasy could be like angels and demons, right? Like that's a level of fantasy. It, it can be like real gods. It can also be these magic systems that we've had for a long time. So that's why like, I'm, I'm trying to clarify. Mm-hmm. It, we are We are quickly distancing ourselves from the traditional epic fantasy that Brandon has built his brand on and moving into the Cosmere of which is sci fantasy. Gotcha. Yeah. It just struck me, you know, as I was thinking about it. Makes sense. In a big way. Yeah. Nothing. There's nothing strictly wrong with that, but kind of is what it is. Anyway, love this book. Really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it for a lot of reasons that, again, I cannot talk about with you immediately. I do enjoy other components, but some of the things that you like, I don't love. <laughs> we'll talk about those mm-hmm. things. But yeah, cool. All right. So let's start here. I mean, anywhere in particular that you want to start, we can start with the world of Canical and the sort of setup of the whole thing. This is one thing that I think will never be missing from any of Brandon's works is the sort of way that a new setting hits right like one of the things that brandon does best is building a setting and giving us a setting and a unique reason that things happen and a unique society that is adapted to survive in those settings mm-hmm. and this is out of this fucking world this is easily the best of the three books yeah. in my mind and it's interesting that you say that because it is not like it has critical differences that I think make it better, make it leagues better, but mm-hmm. it does feel fairly similar to Frugal Wizard in its like initial yes. opening, <laughs> which we, so right. which we so right. kind of tore to shreds a little bit. Yeah, it does have a lot of similarities in its opening and it does feel like a refined version of those things. It doesn't hurt. And this is so strange. And again, this is not something I want to dig into a whole lot. And I'm I'm very curious of your thoughts, but we we cut immediately to Nomad showing up, right? And I have an established relationship with Nomad from four thousand plus pages. <laughs> How did you feel about this character? <laughs> you seem pretty pretty cool to me. 
Yeah. I wasn't aware that he was like that established as a character. I thought he was kind of a tangentially. Um, I'm trying not to uh, no, trying fine. not to that's like fine. put a whole lot of weight on it. There's a 4000 page series that talks about right. it. That's more what I meant. Gotcha. Yeah. He's okay. not on every page. Yeah. yeah. I felt like this was we, we, we had this conversation on the phone uh, a couple hours ago. And I'm bringing that up because it it gives context to like how we were talking about this. There is very a very clear dedication to the like super fans of the Cosmere in in the way that Brandon wrote this book. But I feel like he also did a very very good job of making it accessible to somebody who knows nothing because I did not feel like I was missing out on information almost at all. Throughout this entire story, but especially at the beginning, it felt like a great intro to a kind of mysterious but well-regarded high-level character. And I I would not have known – going into this perfectly blind, I would not have known that this was related at all, right away at least, like immediately, first first chapter. I wouldn't have known at all that he was – um, an important character or even a side character to a larger story. So I felt like it was perfectly well done. This was the only, for the record, this was the only one in which I did because I was kind of worried about it that I revealed the title to myself. I gave myself a little bit of knowledge on ahead of time because I was concerned about how crazy it was going to be based on the vague description that Brandon gave. And so I read the initial chapters. These are This was the only one that I did this with. I read the initial chapters that he released, and I determined early on that it was going to be okay. <laughs> um, or that it would have to be, because I also think that doing this series this way is unique, and it's, it's a good thing to explore. I am still... I have my qualms about having you read this instead, to some degree, and I'm, I'm curious as to what that'll yield when eventually Stormlight comes a-knocking, but... Yeah. Yeah. I I'm glad. I'm glad that you had that impact with with Nomad or that Nomad had that impact with you. Which which name do we want to re- refer to him by by the way? Do we want to use Nomad? Do we want to use Zellian? He's briefly mentioned as his name in Stormlight, which is Sigzel, and Ox calls him Sigzel quite a bit. Uh, the squire. We we live with Nomad for long enough that that's okay. what sticks in my that's head. That's fine. I just want to make sure so, that I'm I'm like referring to him the way that makes the most sense to you Mm -hmm. so yeah i love i love the initial premise of landing on this i it and as it's cited in the sort of description this is very mad max this is blisteringly paced Mm -hmm. for the first 20 or so chapters i think that unlike a lot of other stories this is of brandon stories there is not a single hiccup along the way as far as beats or pacing goes But I will say that my biggest complaint about it is some of the descriptions as such. Like, there's a lot of loosey-goosey, assumptive detail going on in this book in general. Yeah. Like, the description of the cities themselves, or the bikes, or, like, the way that, like, the roads run even among them is all left a lot to imagination as opposed to being described in any context. That's fair, and I I feel like I'm also in this unique position where I have a very hard time visualizing things uh, from 
just word descriptions in general. So it didn't strike me as uh, less descriptive mm. or off compared to anything else. And I don't know. I, I I felt like I could the way that this is written from more of an engineering perspective in a lot of cases kind of helped me find the ability to piece together the way that the mechanics work and the way or the the physical mechanics, the way the like you were mentioning the bikes and things. Like I, I felt like I had mm-hmm. a fairly decent grasp on how that looked. Maybe not in the way that Brandon intended, but I felt like. We got the way that they link together and the number of seats and things like that, that I was able to put together a fairly clear picture in my head of what that might yield. Yeah, I, I guess my point is more that like you could assemble a, a semblance of an idea, right? But it's not as though it's not like the spires of Lutadel, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's not very clear as to what exactly any of these things are as opposed to vague Here's my vague sci-fi imagery. This is one of my biggest complaints with the book, for the record, is here's my vague sci-fi imagery. You know what sci-fi is. Go and deal with it as you will. And that's kind of how I felt about the description of a lot of things in this mm-hmm. That's fair. book. And that's, totally that's fair. like, that is probably my largest complaint. And that's the reason that I would not rank it higher than mm-hmm. the other two personally, but I love it still. Speaking of imagery... I'm curious if you know the answer to this because this for Sunlit and Yumi, but I don't think it was mm-hmm. the case for Tress or I know it wasn't for Tress. I'm trying to think. I don't think it was for Frugal Wizard either. The illustration descriptions. Mm-hmm. Do you know if those were written first or illustrated? No, first? those illustrated first and then adapted. So they're okay. illustrated and then written. Yep. Written so by Brandon or a lot by of somebody or by like the artist? That's that's a great question. I don't know that. I would assume it wasn't Brandon because I would assume it's later. I would bet dollars to donuts. And this would be a great question to like ask at some point, maybe throw it into the Reddit Reddit over there in the Cosmere. But I would imagine it was Isaac Stewart okay. who was the art director for all of this. So mm-hmm. I would bet he took and wrote the descriptions. And I bet those descriptions he, were pretty close yeah. Maybe maybe not identical if that's the case, but pretty close to the prompts given to the artists for like what to. They didn't. They weren't provided prompts. Oh, really? They, they were. were not, they were so, provided the text yep. and then made. Yeah. So okay. all awesome. of them, and and this is detail that I've gotten from a couple of the live streams and like following along and whatnot. But they were basically given the text and say, "Hey, run with it." And so this one, I don't know specifically about yet. He hasn't done something that's addressed it. On its own, he probably will in December, I would assume, or November. And I'll watch that, and maybe we can adjust this or add context later in something else Cosmerian that we talk about. But this is the only one with multiple artists. Mm-hmm. Everything else, they just gave it to the artist and, and said, run wild, which is why Frugal Wizard has, like, the liner art, which is so fucking cool <laughs> in a mostly not good book. <laughs> and, like... It, it's my favorite of it's not my favorite of the arts, but I love it because it's so interspersed and so everywhere and it's so all over the place. Like that's the coolest thing to the book to me is the way that that kind of Steve Argyle just ran amok in that mm-hmm. book. But I, this one with three artists, I can't help but wonder. Yeah, I think overall, this is my favorite. Like we're not talking art, about that yet. Artwork. Oh, oh, really? 
Oh, on the cover or just in general? The cover and the stylization of the chapter pages and... So, like, the full book composition is your favorite. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Followed closely, very, very closely by Yumi. Yeah, I think Yumi is my favorite of the art selections and, like, everything collectively that happens, like... Man, I love those pages. I, there's there's something so evocative about those chapter pages. But I do love both Tress and Sunlit do a great job communicating with the chapter headings where things are in different moments. Like the way that the planet moves as it moves through the, mm-hmm. the chapter headings is awesome. And Tress similarly, like where they're at in the sea is communicated by the vibrancy of the Aether and the color of the Aether. That It's just, it's awesome. So, yeah. Okay. Well, we're already here. I want to I want to deflect back to the story in a second, but since we're talking about things that are wider, maybe we take a second and we talk about it. Let's get it out of the way. How do we rank these things? How do Fuck, we feel, man? <laughs> I know it's tough. I could. All right, so number four is frugal. Yep, easy. Tress just edges out Yumi. For me, and I could, mm-hmm. at the drop of a hat, decide almost on a whim if Sunlit goes first, second, or third. Like I, it, it all of them are so close. Mm. I think it might be first for me. That's fair. I totally get that. I totally get that. And I, it is I, my third, okay, by margin. But <laughs> it's so close. Um, I'm curious if it's recency bias. Like that that's a real thing, I'm sure. I would bet if you reread Tress, you would probably like it more, but that's because I know your yeah. some of your likes at the very least. <laughs> fair. And there's been distance from Tress. So yeah. For me, I definitely think it's Yumi. Yumi is my favorite of the books. I, I think that it's tough to beat. I think that's an emotional story. I think that while there are cheesy bits that don't work perfectly, and there's the one full chapter of like explanation to try to make it all happen in the end. Mm-hmm. It's still so damn good. And and the metaphor, the art, everything like pulls together to make it my favorite of the projects. Tress is close behind, though. And I think the only thing that holds Tress back is in my head a weak third act that doesn't quite like the dragon part lands. But I think the very end with the witch doesn't land perfectly right. for me. So th- that's where I think Tress sits. Sunlit, I predominantly have description problems, as mentioned. And then I've got some like slight gripes here and there. But again, those gripes, and I, I this is why I can't hold it against the text. It doesn't feel like it's gripes with the text. It feels like it's gripes with where things are potentially going. I will say, I love Sunlit. Sunlit has made the Lost Metal look so fucking bad and has degraded my thoughts on the Lost Metal enormously. Damn. It is easily now in like my low, outside of the wax and wane parts it is easily in my like lowest tier cosmere books okay i can i can understand it i feel like sunlit is the one of the secret projects that doesn't suffer from things kind of falling apart in the last act Hmm. like i i feel like kind of true yeah i would agree with that although even through some other things with the sort of how it all comes together felt rushed like all of it felt rushed yeah yeah i and that is that is a general 
opinion that I hold with late Sanderson at the moment is all of it feels like it just needs a little bit more time in the oven. But overall, like what's crazy, like I feel like the gripes that we have with the endings outside of Frugal Wizard are the differences between like nines, nine and a halfs, eight and a halfs to like nine and a halfs and tens with the books mm-hmm. equanimously. Like this is moving into a perfect novel or like a near perfect novel. Right. Yeah. So I will say this book was edited by Moshe of whom has edited all of the Stormlight books. And you can fucking tell. I'm not going to lie. You can absolutely tell that this book was edited by Moshe because it has the same sort of it's got that touch and it's crazy. I've never picked up on it outside of what's her name of whom did edit the lost metal Jillian something or other. Also the editor of Joe Abercrombie. You can tell where her flourishes are and I can very clearly see. Yeah, this this has that same sort of imprint. And I've felt Moshe's influence. (laughs) (laughs) Moshe also, you've you've read Moshe's work because he also edited the Mistborn books and Warbreaker and okay. Elantris. So, gotcha. Yeah. But yeah, it feels, it has a more consistent, I don't know, tone, rhythm, everything. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think that's how I'd rank him. I think I'm I'm solidly Yumi, then I'm closely followed by behind by Tress, and then closely Sunlight. Like they're, all three are excellent for different reasons. And then Frugal Wizard is just on its own tier of don't like. I would go so far, PJ, in this moment to say that on the whole, I like Frugal Wizard more than I like the Lost Metal after Sunlit Man. Interesting. It embarrasses the Lost Metal. Like, Sunlit Man embarrasses the Lost Metal as a novel. It's really fucking good. (laughs) Yeah, it, it is. And it handles everything with a much more deft hand than... TLM does, and that is that sucks, kind of. But hmm. I don't know. I don't, maybe that might be too harsh. Maybe that might be too harsh. Approach. Yeah. It. I don't know. I don't know. I've thought about it a lot because it weighs on my my head, and my heart heavily <laughs> <laughs> for some fucking reason. Doesn't need to. Doesn't deserve to. Okay, let's move back to the book, though. Here, mm-hmm. talk about some some shit, right? So the setup, of course, is crazy important. But we have the magic of this world, of which is the Sun Hearts. And it is, without question, the it is it is the hardest magic system of Brandon's in the sense of like the emotional impact of how magic fuels these people. Like this is literally sacrifices at the altar to continue to survive as a society. It's it doesn't feel sustainable. Like I, no, maybe we're just getting, burning out. Like maybe we're entering this society in a pivotal time of changeover where they they're needing more sun hearts than they normally would. We and we maybe don't get a firm understanding of how long each of them lasts, but it's a small enough community. It's a small enough society that it feels Based on what we're exposed to, they wouldn't last a year on this world with the, with the rate at which they're going through Sunhearts. Um, and I think it's just kind of perfect timing in in the turnover. But it's hard to <laughs> hard to grip that, I guess. Yeah, some of that's the rebellious nature of Beacon, right, and the way that they're kind of like fighting to survive and. 
I, I really love the rebellion versus re- the oppressor angle that we get throughout this story with the Cinder King and, mm-hmm. and whatnot. So, yeah, I think I think that it works well, but it does feel like they're on a razor's edge trying to make it through with as few sacrifices. And I find it intelligent of the society to have this like refreshing council of folks yeah of whom, like, the oldest of whom serve with knowledge and then give up their hearts to keep everything going longer like that is a strong metaphor uh inside of this novel that i really like it, it also it, i mean there wouldn't be an ethical way to do it on no on earth but to to understand that your time is very, very limited and everything that you're doing is strictly for the benefit of others and for the benefit of the society that you're serving makes for a very, very pure leadership council. Mm-hmm. It's I, I was very impressed by the reveals within that council of three. Yeah, this this is a little bit more political than I'd like to be. Um, on the show, but I've always I've heard and I, I generally agree with this, but and and there are restrictions, of course, and whatever, like this is not a universal theory. But as far as it goes. With communities, you want it to be more socialist at the bottom where like people are interacting with each other more and more and more closely and have more close ties. And then as you move up, it's less. Right. So like you move up to like a, a libertarian from from the bottom, if you're talking like community, you and your neighborhood, very socialistic, share everything, do these things. You and your county or you and your, I don't know, township share things communally and have like protective services that are provided from people that are inside of that. Then next step and like all of those like republic layers that come down. This feels like it's got that sort of ideology baked into it to some degree that I really mm-hmm. appreciated. It feels like it represented that in a way that I had never read before. Right. At the very least recently. Coalescent kind of covered that, Stephen Baxter, but Yeah. From your in in your opinion, or based on your read of this society, maybe there were numbers given and I just don't remember, but I, I got the feeling that this was a community of several hundred people maxing out at maybe a thousand. Did you see it as about that size or larger? PJ, I had such trouble imagining most of this shit because it has such bad descriptions. I couldn't tell you. Okay. I, no, genuinely, like no, that is fair. that is my number one problem with this novel is I did not get that kind of description baked into my head ever out in all of it. And I, I read it once and I listened to it once and it never caught me that way. Like I never got an idea. I if I had to bet based on the way that they were fighting to survive I would say it was less than 5,000. Okay. Yeah. But I don't know. It could have been 100,000. I don't literally no fucking clue. Mm-hmm. That's my biggest gripe with this whole novel is those descriptions. Yeah. Everything else rules. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. But yeah. I, what do you think? What was, where was your brain at? I mean, I, it made me think like Mad Max and like sort of, post-apocalyptic it, it it gave off some post-apocalyptic vibes in the way that it's small communities rallying together for their own communal survival like walking dead like last of us things like that 
So I, I was thinking maybe like 300 people, especially with these floating cities where it was conceivable. The, the way he describes the, the way that the city breaks apart, it doesn't feel like it could be much bigger than a couple hundred people because he sees it as like crumbling initially. And then, oh no, they're, they're all individual pieces that are breaking apart. But if it was that much bigger to include several thousand people, it would just be the very, very small pieces kind of breaking off. And I don't think he'd have that reaction and surprise that the city's crumbling to pieces. Right. That's, that's a fair point. I think that that is a reasonable assumption. My, my problem is, is that the text forces me to make that assumption or like, it doesn't need to be explained directly to me. I just finished, or rather a couple of months ago, I finished the first Malison book and that book is like, Hey, I'm going to take you for a ride and you're going to, you're not going to know fucking shit about anything. And it's 600 pages and good luck. And you're like, okay, okay, sir. I'm going to learn the military command ranks of all these different people. And I'm going to follow this character that is a possessed doll and whatever the fuck else you say, sir. <laughs> and you don't know why anything's happening because the text is like, hey, yeah, trust me. I never feel like this text takes enough time, partially because of the pacing, to make me, to force me to trust it in a way that's similar, if that makes sense. Like it, it hopes that you do. It hopes that you already have the buy-in, but it never provides enough to get you there to be like, hey, you should understand this just based on your suppositions. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's kind of a vague way of alluding to it, but yeah. mm-hmm. the spritz cocktail was a little bit more boozy than I thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I Friends, love it. Family delicious but i did i did really i did really enjoy on the whole the sort of image or the idea of the cities that can break up into these multiple pieces and fly independently and like do that like that was very unique and interesting to me i just never got a i I never got a scope or a scale that's true we didn't so that was that was my biggest issue the only other random fucking issue i had with it was the and this is a third act problem. This is the only third act problem that I had. But the like lockout that happens where they couldn't break it down because like he somehow the Cinder King managed to lock it out. Makes sense. He He's the only one who really like knows the technology and like has the knowledge because the Scadrians have like given him a bunch. But it still felt a little weird <laughs> compared yeah. to a lot of the other stuff. It's fair. Not the biggest deal, but. But something. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's still it's still a thing. So I have to ask, because we're almost approaching talking about the characters and the people that make up the story. You did not read Silence in the Forest of Hell before this. Correct. Right. Okay. Not that it's a crazy big deal. I did say you didn't have to read it. I did recommend it. But I'm curious what you thought of the society from a culture perspective, given what the novel gives you. You give me a little bit more to go on from that. So like you are you talking given, about beacon as as like beacon or are you talking about the world? Well, beacon is a 
segment of the world. So yes, I, I would beacon in particular, right? Like they're they're obviously rebels, but thinking about the culture itself, so like the people that compose it, their names, the sort of religious affectation that they have, like all of those different components, education, their their adherence or like acknowledgement of technology, the way that they interact with the the shades that are their fabricators, like that that is kind of what I'm trying to dial into. Okay. I mean, they felt lean. They they felt the best way that I can describe it is the way that I already did is post-apocalyptic out for survival, kind of direly outrunning the clock as much as they can, like against all odds. But nothing else, nothing else. (laughs) Like there's, there's no, there's, there's nothing else that they're leaning into as a society that you can pick up from this text. Well, because they can't. They don't have time to, especially like they're, they're, they're intelligent, but they're intelligent out of necessity and they don't have the luxury of downtime to, to find advancements beyond what's direly necessary. The names themselves no feel yeah, like... I was expecting them to be, how do I describe this? It's immediately after he was able to understand the language. He was able to connect to to the world through investment and understand the language. And I, I thought it would resolve a little bit. Like, Adel Nasium will... Remember our plight eventually? Yeah. Like, I, I thought that's what I was going to name my cocktail originally. I know. That would have been, it's, yeah. such, it's such a good name for a cocktail. It's we'll get such there. A, There's a couple of other ones that we'll get cocktail. to. Yeah. But I was expecting that to coalesce into a name that means that. But his like initial sort of understanding was too literal, maybe. But that didn't happen. That's one that doesn't make sense to me as a name yet like it makes it makes sense to me as the translation of a name but it doesn't make sense to me as a name so i don't know what to make of that yeah okay i totally get that i have no qualms spoiling a short story in this case which i do recommend it's a it's a very good one but they often talk about the fact that these are threnodites right like that's mentioned many times throughout the text cinder king knows that the squadrons talk about it uh nomad talks about it it's very clear that we understand that this is from the Threnodite system and Threnody in general. Threnody is this sort of, it, it's this world in which when people die, they become these sort of possessed shades that attack and are otherwise violent. There are these cognitive shadows, we think, or shades or something in that realm that are aggressive, right? And so they're they're problematic, but it's led this society to be very puritanical. And so, as such, I was curious if you had caught on to the sort of Puritan vibe that not only do these names have, but the idea that the society has. And if you thought that it embodied that at any point outside of the names, because I'm not entirely certain that it does outside of adherence vaguely to a religion that we don't really see described. Yeah, I... I got that they were a fairly religious people, but I didn't see it as... We didn't see worship. We didn't see like... We didn't see any worship. We didn't see... Like, even the religious names are not that pervasive. 
Yeah, I mean Jeffrey, Jeffrey, right? Yeah, or or Rebecca. Like may, maybe if I understood the religion that they're Puritans of a little bit more, right? Maybe I'd be able to see more of that, but I don't, so I can't. My my other qualm with them being Puritans in quotes is that we're using what I would consider to be Christian Puritan terms to define them as opposed to defining Puritanity, Purit- Puritaneity, Puritaneity on some other structure. Mm-hmm. Right. So like it doesn't zeal, for instance, great character, love him to death or divinity or what is it? Divinity, d- divine, something or other divinity, sublime. I don't know. All, all of those terms speak an elegy, canticle in general. They speak to a sort of Christian purity of Puritan that is not otherwise given in the text or not otherwise explained. In either this or, in my opinion, in Silence in the, Silence in the Forest of Hell, the short story. So is there, is there anything with the propensity to sacrifice oneself? That can be attributed to that puritanical point of view, Christian or otherwise, sacrificing yourself for the for the betterment of society, martyrdom no, in general. But Puritans were the people were the Christian sect that did sacrifice people, but it was predominantly people that were outside of the culture or had otherwise sinned. So like that's like it it turns it's got a it's got a positive puritanical tone as opposed to generally Puritans are associated with like the crucible. If you remember yeah. that from high school, mm-hmm. that would be as close as we get equivalent here. Okay. So it's, it's more of a positive spin than a negative one. Gotcha. Not that that's a big deal. And again, it's more like a, does that work as an idea in this? And I don't know that it, it's executed. Well, I didn't, my understanding of it was they didn't strike me as particularly religious compared to any of the Mistborn universe that we've been exposed to, uh, any of any of the other Brandon Sanderson works that we've yeah. read on this show. None this of this is the least th- religious of the bunch. It, but or at least they're supposed not the to be most, the most religious. Like, like it, it didn't yeah. it didn't feel particularly outstanding one way or the other. It didn't feel atheistic in any way. It didn't feel rigorously religious in any way. It just it didn't cross my mind. I know we had like we were kind of forced to call them Puritans based on nomads description of them initially and that didn't make sense to me like first couple chapters maybe chapter three or four or something and he yeah, was talking about there, there is like a religious orders making whiskey on his world or something like that yes of which we can't talk about and i would be at some point so excited to make cocktails over but we're not gonna have varin wine for a bit so yeah i'll give you the barest of notes because the text does here Religion is in charge of alcohol on a different world, kind of. Okay, or some some alcohol, not all, but some. But there—that's the point where, when he talks about that, is also the same point where he talks about this society being 
does he use the term puritanical or does he use something kind of analogous to it? I think it's adjacent. This is more like a term that's been ascribed to them and as such by others. He doesn't use the term puritanical. This is meant to be descriptive from outside the text, right? As though these are these folks are puritanical. But I just don't see it. And it, it is used inside of the Silence of the Forest of Hell. So like okay. it is a part of the Threnody idea. Gotcha. Which is why like I also, I get that you don't pick that up, right, in the text. But at the same time, does the text do anything to point you towards that? I don't think it does. No. It doesn't point it towards a particularly religious society outside of knowledge beyond a number of other cultures about the shards and sort of the, the Cosmere at large mm-hmm. that is outstanding. Yeah. Think and- of that. There's a lot. That's that's a big question. It is a but. lot. Understanding that in conjunction with knowing that Scadrians are at the core of this planet, basically, made me feel like the understanding of the way that the gods worked within this universe had become pervasive and it had just become more common knowledge and we would start getting into more focused like intensely focused nitty-gritty of the cosmere within this realm which i'm assuming is beyond era three of mistborn maybe era four it 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 pointed to me that society itself had become more understanding as opposed to this society being particularly understanding of the way that the universe worked if that Hmm. makes sense I, I think that given the text, it is it is speaking to this society be more understanding. We do get the Scadrian perspective down the line here, of which is obviously we know this from all the texts that we've read so far. This is without a doubt the furthest that we've seen the Scadrians at this point along the technological line. It is also easily by and far away the furthest out story inside of the Cosmere. I, I imagine this is and will be for a while the last book that I recommend people read inside of the Cosmere. Not because it's bad, it's great, but because you need so much con or like context blooms inside of this book. Like it becomes something much more than what it is. It becomes more than the sum of its parts because of context. And so you gotta have all that to like really, I think love it and appreciate it you can still pj i don't i don't want to besmirch your opinion but you can still really like it without it but like there's a different affection i think for the story if you have all the other context so maybe this is a good time to ask this question with your understanding of this book and stormlight archive Mm -hmm. do you think this will fundamentally change my experience with that series Having already read this. Yeah, I, I do think it will. In a positive or negative way? I think it's negative. I think ultimately it impacts the story negatively, which is why I think that this kind of sucks that we had to do it this way. I'm excited on one hand because you got to experience this out of cadence with a lot of other people. However, my other hand of experience is like, 
there's some shit that got you're dropped. Gonna spend, <laughs> you're going to spend a couple hundred pages. You're going to spend 500 pages when you're like, oh, I know what that is. And like, it's going to take 500 pages for you to get to like the character understanding what that is. You're going to be mad about it as opposed to the, and this is, this is a fundamental clause of the, this doesn't feel like a spoiler. You've seen it before. One of the clauses of the Stormlight Archive in general is journey before destination. It's important, I think. But sometimes shortcuts can totally ruin the journey, right? Like knowledge mm. of what the journey is can ruin the journey. Okay. So that is my concern. And that mm. is what I think has been to some degree. Like I think my perspective right now without getting spoilers is that I think that it will impact your opinion of some characters, their intelligence, their wherewithal. And, and like also the text and the time that it takes, you'll feel like it's dragging when it should feel like you're exploring something new for the first time. Um, and that's, that's my fear Mm -hmm. more or less. Okay. That's understandable here. It's like, cool this happened that happens this happens that happens we've seen things in this book that don't happen in the other series that are unbelievable if they worked like which is the other side of it i have to talk about that on my own but okay fair enough obviously they worked they do work but it's just yeah i don't know i've got this i don't want to talk about it too much i feel like we've moved in, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, but I feel like we've moved to some degree from fantasy people with magical powers that are indescribable for various reasons to now we are graduating to superheroes and science fantasy and not loving that transition. That's what mm -hmm. I'm having trouble with. Okay. That's I can what see I'm that. personally having trouble with. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, Having scientifically explained superheroes kind of sucks. <laughs> like, love Iron Man. Love the suits. The man would turn into jelly. I don't need to know that he would turn into jelly. It's still fucking cool. And like, just to make it make sense so that he doesn't turn into jelly doesn't matter. Like, that's the that's the kind of like nuance and minutia that I think this series in general and in large has spent too much time trying to make rational sense when I don't know that it matters that much. Mm -hmm. That Iron Man it's example. It's cool that it does. Also falls but apart. But it doesn't need to. When the suit loses power, he still doesn't die. No, right. <laughs> I agree with you. I, I, the point being is that like, yeah, because he should immediately turn to pace is like gravity and like the metal and the, yeah. Everything, right. yeah. Yeah, right. But the point is, is that I might my suspense of disbelief has carried me to this point. So I don't need the other details to fill in the gaps, mm. but now we're having so many details filled in that it's like, I don't feel like I need to interrogate all those things. Like I never felt like I needed to, to begin with. And now you're making me, <laughs> and I don't need this page count time to interrogate those things. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that's, that's like a digression of sorts. It's fair, but it is one of my qualms versus Hard sci-fi, of which I think does a really good job of this without over-explaining it. So, mm -hmm. I think that if I were to levy a single thing to Sanderson himself, be like, hey, 
here's the one thing that I would love for you to focus on in any future writings. It would be stop writing like a fantasy author, start writing like a science fiction author. Change. Because he's writing science fiction like fantasy. And that is, it doesn't work as well. <laughs> like, I don't need old math because I know that the math is there. Okay, so that's one of the things that made me love this book so much. <laughs> no, no, no. For, for the record, <laughs> I'm saying you can quantify it, but once you quantify it, you don't have to again. Like, I, I understand, for instance, let's, I know that you haven't read The Expanse, but I don't need you to explain how afterburners work every other page. I don't need for you to explain how if I burn on the left side, I'm going to be pushing this and the nose is going to stay put, right? My rear moves, my nose stays put because I've got a rear afterburner that burns in a circle. So I don't need for you to explain that every single time, which is what I think has come to pass across the gross of these novels because he's always trying to make each one amenable to a new audience. And as such, it's weighty. I hope that he doesn't. That's that's kind of my problem. The only example, counterexample for the most part, inside of these books that I or inside of this book that I can point to is the way that he vaguely explains the jar of door that he finds in the Scadrian Sanctum. Right? Mm-hmm. He doesn't really explain it outside of the fact that this is just pure investiture. It's like, okay, cool. Like, get it. Got it. Good. We know that. We have more context from other things. You didn't need to sit there and explain, okay, well, the door is from a dead god on this other planet, and then, like, that's just basically energy that they captured in a jar and, like, did this, which the Lost Metal did, by comparison. Like, Mm -hmm. we don't need it every time. I don't need... Yeah, it's a waste of of space. It's a waste of energy. We understand how things work, or that things work. Okay. It's important that the explanation exists somewhere but it need not exist every time it hits the page. Fair. Totally fair. That's my point. And that's not to say that I, again, I know that you love that specifically. That's why I'm trying to say you don't need it more. than this. Right. You don't need more True. than, or, or if like there's a deep reminder of some rule that happened forever ago, remind us like, that's fine. But it is, Maybe this is just our, a symptom of us existing in the way that we do as a podcast, but it feels omnipresent all the time. We do dig just to every single detail me. constantly. Yeah, it bothers me. Which, it, it, by comparison, it is kind of fun to tackle these books as standalone pieces in a single episode. Right. But, I, I agree with that. Yeah. That's as opposed I, to like, I don't think I'd the minutia of go back and change the way that we handle the core books that we tackle. No, well, I w- definitely wouldn't change the way that we handled the core books that we tackled so far outside of, I would probably change the Mistborn era two books into two or three episodes a piece. Some of them were like four or five, but I think we could have done them just in parts, but that's probably true. Nonetheless, love those still. Sorry. I'm digressing so much inside of this episode and trying okay. not to talk about spoilery things. I would love to talk about my favorite part of this book, which is the other characters. I do love Nomad, Zellian, Sigzel quite a bit. But I think that out of all of the books, this book has the best supporting cast to me. And it starts with Auxiliary, Ox. So I will, I will, 
I'd like to give a caveat to that. And that is um, sure. the crew from Mistborn, like Era One, like that. That's the best supporting cast. Okay, Ham oh, and Breeze. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And- I'm talking from. For the record, I'm talking from these books, oh, explicitly okay. the secret projects. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, I would agree. I think that I think that the original crew is of the books that we've read. My favorite supporting cast. Um, they need there are fixes, but I think that it's great. Mm-hmm. I miss them quite a bit. Yeah. Right. Sorry, but yeah, of of the no, secret right. projects, absolutely. Without yes. A doubt. Right. Tress is maybe a close second with the early uh, behind. Crew. Yumi's thinnest point is the the supporting cast. Yep. And is there a supporting cast in <laughs> in Frugal Wizard? There's the girlfriend, <laughs> kind of. Yeah. There. It doesn't even warrant talking about. But yeah. <laughs> okay. Yes, I I think it's I think it edges out Yumi or edges out. Tress in that in that case it's a very colorful vibrant well well written supporting cast system yeah i i think it's excellent rebecca is incredible the characterization that we get from elegy when she enters the story and re- so like the context of who she was before she died and had the chard the the sun heart stuck in her to turn her into a chard isn't is incredible the POV that we get as she's controlled and we feel those moments. We'll talk about the POV swap in a minute, minute, but like her as a character, Elegy is mind blowing. I loved Elegy. The entire group of the elders, I forget what they're called. The, they're the three that are appointed. Yeah. What is their um, title? Their, their God name. I was like council. It's gotta be something in that realm. Council of three sounds right, but I don't, no the greater good they're called the greater, the greater good. good yes yep that's it the greater good is incredible as a group of people and i like the description it works well for me solemnity divine is great we get we've gotten wit in each of the cosmere stories or hoid um, so each of the that's cosmere stories, something which is excellent. i didn't realize and you want to uh, explain well i didn't realize that hoid was so unique and I, I understood the connections to Hoyd in the descriptions of Wit, but I assumed it was one of Wit's contemporaries, or one of, one of Hoyd's mm. contemporaries. I, I assumed it was somebody in a very similar position as Hoyd, and it was, but I, I didn't realize that it was literally the same character until a couple hours ago when we were talking on the phone. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I think your realization had more to do with not picking up on it in the text, which is crazy for the record, because the text mentions Hoyd outside of the postscript a couple of times. So, like, it is like Hoyd and Wit are connected directly in mm-hmm. the text. So, um, but it is only a couple of times very narrowly. The postscript is what like solidified it for me, <laughs> weirdly, because my understanding of it was that he wanted Hoyd to be the central character here, but decided maybe Wit would work better as opposed to maybe one of Hoyd's apprentices would work better. Mm. Like I, I the yeah. way I took it was that like 
he wanted to separate you were by the postscript. Yep, yeah, I was. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, but the even even so, in says, the, during the story, I didn't draw the connection that this was supposed to be Hoyd because I haven't read Stormlight. I didn't. I haven't known Hoyd Wit, to be of Wit any as a name other character. Only dropped in Stormlight. Yep. Fair, but but yeah. I, I've never known Hoyd to have any other name other than Hoyd. I know, like in like in lore, he has many names, but I've only ever experienced him as Hoyd. Yeah, right. And the postscript says that originally his intent was to have Topaz be the main character of the story, of whom was later renamed Wit and Hoyd. So that's where like. There's there's just like this book is littered with those kind of things where it's like it's a single word. It's a single thing. It's not meant to be the end or the beginning of the world. But you would come to realize immediately when you read Stormlight that Wit is Void. So I, I also don't feel bad about that. No, that's there's another name for him that I won't use that you won't realize. And that'll be fine. You'll like that when it shows up. So I'm not going to I won't spoil that other name. But cool. Wit Wit and Hoyt are used interchangeably. Hoyt is the predominant name because that's what he is in every other story. In Stormlight, he's predominantly Wit. And then eventually Hoyt. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So I. <sighs> Sorry to Man, derail we talking you. About you're talking about characters. No, no, no. We were talking about characters. This is a good segue to some degree. I would love to segue back. Did you have any like favorite characters among a group of them? Was Was there anyone that like stood out to you? individually oh what what's one of the greater good it's not conscience but starts with a c oh confidence confidence compassion contemplation oh they're all c's there were all right yeah and all the greater goods those are all different names of people but i think it's i want to say it's confidence i think confidence it's one of the most prevalent one of the yep, ones yep. that are, are primarily interacted with. That's the one that has the dyed hair, right? I think so. I like that. Dis- hard to track with even, if, even if it wasn't the idea of the dyed hair not being vanity, but being possession and that mm-hmm. sort of recognition from Nomad was unique i'd say i i haven't seen um that breakdown of vanity in that way at least in a very long time if at all in a in a larger story like this so that was kind of fun but the greater good in general as a whole i adored i loved that mm. existence Group. that that uh, yeah what would you call it? Fuck. I'm like two cocked two heavy cocktails, a shot, and most of a beer in right now. I'm, <laughs> I'm so sure. like that senior advisory group, Advis- that sort of like group yeah, of that uh that's the most bullshitty way that I've ever said that. Like the elder seers, right? Like yeah, the elders. Yeah. Community leaders. They're the governmental stand-ins. Yeah. They're a government, more or less, but Yeah, I mean without without the authority. They're the, a communal government. They're the HOA. <laughs> they're the he, they are the authority. Yeah, they're they're an HOA. Was <laughs> it housing something authority? Yeah. Homeowners Association? No, homeowners <laughs> authority, PJ. 
I'm just kidding. You're right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I really love them as well. Yeah. Rebecca, obviously awesome. Um, Jeff, Jeffrey was, I just liked the name. <laughs> Same with Adelnasium will recognize their plight eventually. Elegy was so much fun. And the maybe this is a good time to talk about the POV swap. That took me so off guard to the point me where the too. first time that it, ha- it happens a couple times. Right? Yeah, like three or four times. Yeah. yeah. The first time that it happened, I was very confused because I was also like working while I was listening to the book. And I had to like back up and I'm like, what the fuck is going on? This doesn't feel like Nomad. <laughs> I did the same thing. I was playing Horizon Zero Dawn. I was in the expansion, the DLC, and I like hit that chapter and I went, wait, what the fuck was that? <laughs> I backed up and I was like, okay, mm-hmm. all right, wait, wait, wait. This is a different POV swap. Okay. All right. I dig it. Elegy? Whoa. And I was super into it. But also, like, is it technically a point of view swap? Oh, entirely. Yeah, it is. It's 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 a limited person, limited point of view. Yeah. No, no, no. We're We're in third person limited. We're not an omniscient. Well, limited omniscient is the the full term for that right no it's third person limited versus third person omniscient i love the pov swap i'm a big fan of what happens here that brandon does as he moves to elegy's perspective it was shocking the first time for sure as it occurred Mm. but i really enjoyed both the observation of the cinder king and also the sort of coursing feelings through her because they were so foreign and alien oh it was so good Mm. it was great especially being so late in the story to get three quarters of the way through the book and suddenly there's a second perspective that was jarring but welcome totally totally welcome i also want to layer in here that this is the funniest brandon sanderson book this is Easily the book that is layered with the most clever humor throughout. I thought genuinely that Ox as a character was perfect comedic relief that never felt overbearing. And all of his jokes landed with me as opposed to a lot of other jokes that are like attempted bits at humor that Sanderson does. I adored this book from a comedy and levity perspective. So I the way you're describing it. Yes, I agree with you. I think I'd give it some more caveats to that description because it doesn't sure. feel to me like a comedy. Like, oh, like my God. In the way this that, is not a comedy. In the way that yeah. a lot of uh, Wayne's interactions within the second era of Mistborn does. Like, he yeah. feels like an intentional comedy sort of he's like uh, a comedic influence. relief character in different moments versus right. this is like this jokes is there, there are just there's just some funny things that happen where without detracting from the drama that's happening so, shakespearean comedy yeah, yeah. It, it's well no <laughs> no that is that is like the definition for the record that would be the definition is it's more like shakespearean there, there comedy are, it's not a shakespearean comedy but it yeah, is that's i guess like a shakespearean play yes yeah. okay 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 i get you i just think it was the most balanced 
while leaning heavily into comedy in some aspects, it, it never felt like it was detracting from um, the vibe of the story being told, which I feel like is a yes. very, very thin line to walk. Which I think more than a lot of other other hmm, other authors that I talk about being funny, Sanderson has violated that line more than I like. <laughs> like a lot of Sanderson jokes don't land for me. Well, um, it's not even not landing. Book, it, it's it's making it not feel forced. Forced, right? Which yeah. is where I'm coming from with not landing, okay. right? Okay. Like the same same perspective to clarify. <laughs> none of these feel forced and part of that is also just the way that ox is in his head he has kind of like a jarvis feel to him which helps mm-hmm. i think and i liked the pushback I, on I him calling him sarcastic yeah <laughs> like that, that was so many fucking hilarious i love ox ox is one of but my favorite even of this outside type of, character. of what ox says the way ox is that my favorite wa- of this type that, of character that ox is quotes are described the, in the back half of the novel where he's like well even even early on because i was re- just re-listening to the first half of the novel i i'm mm-hmm. like 15 or 20 chapters in right now in my reread yeah. i'm um, like eight or something like there, that. there's something like the repetition of because he he's constantly like narrating his own affectation because he can't give mm-hmm. his own affectation the there's one there's a couple moments where he says something and then gives the affectation in quotes and then it's described outside of quotes talking about the like specifically talking well, it's about like saying something nights, flat whatever yeah saying something flatly is like repeated and like there there's just a very comical way so that it's many written. good bits and yeah. I can't like I, I w- think it would it would make a lot more sense if I had the specific in front of me that I'm thinking. Totally of, get it. But yeah, I think that this is a Moshe thing. Truly, I, I I blame Moshe for like being able to perfectly execute the humor on an edit. Truly, I, I think that it really is because I think back to like even most of the jokes in Mistborn and they all land. They're all great. They're all funny. They're all clever. And I think to like Era 2 and most of them are good and most of them work. All the jokes in the Lost Metal, for the most part, work. I, again, pin that on Jillian. But, like, there there are, like, levels in a lot of the other projects. And, like, even Yumi fails in moments when it's trying to be humorous. Otherwise, the text succeeds. But, like, you know, this is just every one lands. And uh, I, I love it. Ox, mm-hmm. Ox is a character. He is my favorite character in the book. Sig Sigzold can sit second seat. Nomad can sit second seat. But like, my God, yeah. Auxiliary as a character is so fucking good, so good. Well, if I weren't dead, <laughs> well, if you didn't let the dawn shard eat me, mm-hmm. and like, there's all these different notes and moments. I mean, I don't even understand the background of it, but the I liked you better when you weren't dead. Well, whose fault is that? <laughs> Yeah, we. Got, oh man, I. That does lead us into a good point of conversation, but I want to make sure we didn't miss any of the characters. We talked about Solemnity Divine. We talked about Jeffrey Jeffrey. We talked about Zeal a little bit. Were there any of the other side characters that you want to give like a little bit of sunshine to? 
I mean, who counts as a side character? Do, does Cinder King count, or is that a primary no, well, antagonist? I mean, we can talk about him now. We can talk about him now. I, I really like the Cinder King. I think that he actually works really well here, especially because he is, unlike a lot of other Sanderson antagonists, I think that you can understand where he's coming from. He's not just pure evil. He's trying to understand break this down become something more than what society was he is trying to progress society just in a very different way he's he's trying to progress society in the way that he has read about in literature progression yeah of the world that nomad comes from he is trying to emulate the more advanced societies that he has exposure to and it is in a way that is oppressive and tyrannical objectively but serves a goal it it certainly would allow for the world to exist in a less hostile way like he he has reasons and yes he is selfish for them and he like he is not without malice but at the same time he is not strictly selfish, which makes for a very, very dynamic antagonist. Yeah, he is definitely selfish. He is not strictly selfish, though. Like, he is not... And we, I, I think I point to him a lot because I think that he is actually a good example of a well-written antagonist inside of a lot of Sanderson's works that we've read so far. Straff is a brilliantly written character Mm -hmm. and i think that in a lot of ways the cinder king doesn't borrow from but feels reminiscent of in a way that a lot of the other villains aren't where they're like very single note he feels like he's got a complexity to him to him of where he is like trying to be the best but he also like knows when to retreat and he knows when to like stand off versus just standing hubrisly on the top of the mountain waiting for someone to come down and smite him right and this it's it's a good representation and i really like the cinder king because of that complexity and especially because his complexity and his addition comes from technology and knowledge that he withholds which is also his own form of power that he holds over the community and the societies at large Mm -hmm. i'd say it's it's not quite to the level of complexity and understandability as like the lord ruler where you once you get that point Mm -hmm. of view and you get that understanding you really can see that like everything that like every step that he's taking is for a reason yeah that's that's like positive entirely i'd say the lord ruler is not selfish and i I would say is selfishly justified what's he benefit from how does he benefit as the top of the pyramid, he benefits. Like he, but he doesn't. He doesn't. Benefits. He doesn't relish in anything. He does. Like he, he lives a life of despair. He's holding. Yeah, but he's kind of holding the world in stasis. Like he's not True. improving upon the world. So yeah, but, I, I but feel like he doesn't personally. Like, okay, fair, fair, but he yeah. doesn't like live the sort of 
opulent lifestyle that you'd no, expect a worldwide I mean, tyrant to live. He does live the opulent lifestyle, but he doesn't relish in it. Like, that's the thing. Like, he doesn't, like, he's not seeking that. If yeah. if it were taken away, he wouldn't care. Yeah. It seems like his yeah. his seconds in command relish more than he does. Yes, for sure. No mm. doubt. But the rest re- of the regardless, like, the Cinder King feels within that vein of... It's not foisted upon him, but he is given the understanding and sort of a a map of how to like how other worlds function and have functioned. And this is a, a world in its in its infancy, and he is able to kind of bend it to his will, and he uses that as a a map. Yeah, it, it creates a modus operandi for him that he functions by and he like tries to pull in as much as he can from outside of his understanding. But I, I think that a big difference between him and a lot of other characters is that he is incredibly selfish. But that self-serving selfishness is to also in some ways the net benefit of his society. So like he is like a Lord ruler in stride being interrupted to some degree because he does already know the way that the sun hearts can be replenished and is maybe doing that. We know that he is still sacrificing people, but like he does understand the process by which they can be enriched without it. And so part of me assumes that he knows this information and is using it occasionally to ensure that his society is coming out on top. So while using the authoritarian ruler stick of I'm going to sacrifice you to the sun, he also is replenishing and harvesting where mm-hmm. he can with intent. Right. Yeah. He's a well-written antagonist. <laughs> totally. I think so. I really like him. I really like him. It's forever interesting to me that he doesn't have a proper name outside of the Cinder King as well. I, I like mm-hmm. that, actually. It keeps him kind of ominous and like looming as opposed to like, ah, yes, this is Howard, the Cinder King. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it would, have, it would have taken away from it, I think. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like that he's just the Cinder King. So. Mm. It would be tough. All right. We're going to do a quick late episode update here. Story and what's going on with the cocktail and the drinks that we're having in general. PJ, you've updated your beverages because you ran out. What are you having? I opened up a full 750 milliliter bottle of Surly Darkness from 2017. It is the... So, if you're not familiar with Surly or Surly Darkness specifically, every year they have a local artist do a different monster as the as the art for that bottle. And 2017's was the Baba Yaga. So you've got this witch with a bubbling cauldron and the house with the little legs walking in the background. So very nice taste. Russian Imperial Stout. Uh, so this is 2017. So this is a six, seven, six-year-old. Six. Yeah. I had that one fresh. Yeah. So did, yeah. I mean, so did I. We I did. Bought and, a lot I had fresh. the White Horse. Yeah. But now that was the last darkness we had at the White Horse. 
That's probably true. That's probably it true. Definitely yeah. is. Um, but it's aged very well. Um, sometimes Russian Imperial Stouts get really bitter and they get really like the roast really gets aggressive as they age. This one, not so much. You still get a, a pretty decent amount of roast. It's expected. It's a, it's a dark beer and that is the prominent flavor and it doesn't dissipate over time like some other flavors do, but it's still fairly balanced. So I'm really happy with it. Excellent. I updated the cocktail to try to do what we were thinking it should taste like. I also settled at the last moment on pulling out the dry curacao. Mm. So doing like removing that, it entirely? Entirely. Completely mm. out of the cocktail. Yeah. Trying to kill the sweetness just to see if like there was enough in the rest of the cocktail to justify it. And with bullet bourbon at the same ratio as the vodka, two ounces, same ratio of juice using club soda and the Peychaud's, it and the lime, of course, one ounce of lime. Perfect. Actually, this is exactly what I wanted it to taste like without using and leaning into the ginger beer. The You get the herbaceousness. You get everything that you're looking for. Those Peychaud's kind of like round it out and give it like, it's not sweeter, but it's like a different bitter note that you like and enjoy. Yeah, no qualms. I, I think that this is lovely. The other one was a spritz. This is the charred sunrise that we wanted. Okay. Melt stone. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. This is it. Works. And also, note on the camera, the color is just a little bit darker. It is. It's similar, it is. but it's just a little bit darker. It's not brown by any stretch. Mm-hmm. So, success. Feel good. All right, PJ. There is still so much that I'd like to talk about in these books and then to like, like kind of round out our feelings on the secret projects at large. But we obviously have the climax in the end of the story as it comes and as we kind of hit it as we deal with this duel and the eventual like teleporting away of and, and like the I love that I, I say it's a duel. It's really just that zellian nomad can stand up to this sort of abuse and just continue to rise and stand again that mirrors this population that he's grown connected with that he considers as close to him as his home world what'd you think what'd you make oh man zellian nomad it's hard for me to go back and forth on the names he's zellian now you know but right. like yeah given where we're at in the story yeah it's it's inspiring it's I, I I can't think of the right word for it, but it is heroic and knowing the constraints that he's under and understanding that he is able to work within the rules that are set upon him and he, he can't attack. He can't even try to like wiggle his way into the idea of attacking and to be able to basically defeat everybody and then stay in concert with the most aggressive and formidable opponent without actually attacking ever is so fucking impressive. It's so cool. It It's very good. He does an excellent job, I think, of navigating that where it is. It's not attacking, but it's always like basically pushing through and like enduring fighting without fighting. Yeah. 
but especially at the end, it is enduring mm-hmm. more than anything else. Endure, my love. Endure. No. So that's a different series. <laughs> hey, go read Red Rising. You'll like it quite a bit. You should. If you haven't read it at this point. Yeah. Yeah, I love... I love the way that this occurs and the way that this happens. I love the end here as it as it pays off. Yeah. Ugh. I wanted to ask, before we go into some of the Stormlighty things, right? We get the resolution of the story. We get him teleporting away. His BEU satisfied. Auxiliary sacrificed for a brief moment of power where he flies again. Quote, again, for the first time in a long time. Okay, maybe I, I'm taking this too too aggressively into multiple parts. Let's talk about the sacrifice of auxiliary, actually, before we go anywhere else. It almost didn't feel real. It almost felt like it was a joke. Really? He was going to come back. He's he's fine. Not quite. I, it, yeah. That was hope. That was... I. I kind of had a similar kind of like pandering thought. So I, yeah. I get that. And I think yeah. that I remember having this thought during the first read through of this because all of the secret projects ends with end with a happy ending despite. Yes. Like mm-hmm. all of them end with that sort of turn from the tragic sacrifice or tragic necessary ending into the <laughs> they lived happily ever after yes and i was i was just i'm glad it didn't to subvert that sort of trope but i'm upset that it didn't because that means ox is dead even though i i've only known him for a couple hundred pages um he Me made too, an impression. Man. Me too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ox is, again, to me, easily the best character introduced into this. And like his choice in this moment to do what he does is so, even though he's dead by other definitions, this final surrender is both an incredible moment from Sigzel being able to achieve the unbelievable in front of everyone as he leaps into the sky and takes to the air and escapes the sun. But it is also the saddest moment. I, I had a tough time. Generally, I feel like I feel courageous victory in a lot of different moments with Sanderson where it just feels like we won. We fucking won. We did it. We did all these things. It feels like a congratulatory pat on the back. This one, as it led into it, because we knew what was happening with him, just felt like a loss as it was happening the whole time to me. I was like, this is a tough sacrifice Mm -hmm. to make this man that I also really love as a character continue forward. And man, tough. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I love it. Me too. Just It hurt because Auxiliary was like my... Easily my favorite character. He was great. Of this new character in this book. And so. the the fact that he's intangible and like it, he didn't feel like he should have been expendable in that way. And expendable is the wrong term, I know. But it, it didn't feel like he should be sacrificable. Sure. In this way. 
but he makes it clear pretty early that like that could happen. Like, and and Sigzel Zellian Nomad is like, no, there's no reason that I would do that, and he wouldn't have. He didn't choose to do that. No, yeah, Ox chose chose for himself. Ox, I was I was kind of upset at the name of auxiliary in the beginning, and then over time it made sense to me, and it's like, oh. You feel like you're auxiliary, but you're actually like right there. You're important. And it was such a fun turn on even like the name and the idea of the character. Okay. I, I get where you're coming from if he but I, I disagree because he constantly refers to him as the knight to Nomad Squire. Oh, no. Like he, and he, also, he, he refers not to wrong him for the himself record. as the main character of this duo do entirely <laughs> i, I want to make sh- make clear like i don't i don't disagree with that idea i just mean that like we knew kind of where he was going but he also knew what he was to someone else which is fascinating and also his name is that thing which i again can't get into that much but incredible. does auxiliary I, I really exist in other books not through book four and that is the okay. closest that I will get you That's to a fine. spoiler. Totally. I didn't yeah. know if he was like yeah. a main character. Auxiliary he- at this point is an entirely new character. I'm curious if... To my understanding of the story. So we understand from this book that Auxiliary was not a spiritual... Like, con- like it seems like he was a tangible other humanoid person... Before, All right. before I, I, I wanna, being bound I clarify. to we're we're gonna we're gonna lead into this just with a bit just to clarify for folks we are going to now hit pj's stormlight adjacent questions and like <laughs> ideas and thoughts there's a lot of these things that i'm going to ask and I, interrogate his ideas of predominantly but obviously i do not expect there. answers and do my fucking damnedest to like answer without answering you or you are to welcome to just the say, shit out of you say no yeah like i don't expect you to actually give answers to any of this which is right, fine. Right, right. But I still we still want to get your ideas because that's kind of fun from this novel's yes. perspective right. of like you're new to a lot of these ideas. So what do you think there? So right. returning to auxiliary. So you were saying it, the way that I understood it or the way that it seemed to present itself was that initially, prior to being bound spiritually to Zixis or Nomad. Or however we want to Zixis? refer. Zixis? Isn't what? that? I don't. What was Sigzel? I appreciate it. But right. Zix, Zixis is the, that is the most hot topic edgelord name that I've ever heard come out of your mouth. I, Zixel sounds was like only a Final said Fantasy a couple character. Times. Sigzel. Yeah. S-I-G-Z-I-L. Sigzel. Oh, I assumed it was an X. Nope. All anyway. Right. Cool. It's fine. Never mind. Yeah. <laughs> Zixis is funny though. That's great. I love it. That is that is straight out of Kingdom Hearts. I'm sticking anyway. with Nomad. All right, it's fine. Yeah. So it seemed like a if we if we rewind all of or most of uh, Mistborn, it seemed like an Ellen Josties kind of friendship relationship. Kind of, yeah. Prior Early. to 
binding as a spiritual like companion. That's kind of where I assume it came from based on the the sparse concept context clues of like the pre death of auxiliary. There are a ton of different references to things that happen. Obviously, I know all of their definitions for the most part at this point. There are a couple of exceptions that are are vague that I will definitely talk about in my own like quick diatribe on things that are outside of the realm of our current understanding. But I'm I'm very curious on your thoughts, and we'll kind of go through these as we can, but on your thoughts on what a Dawn Shard is, what it represents and what you thought of it in the story. I we'll mean, start there. We'll work through a lot of things, but I have some understanding of like this book gives more understanding shards. than any other book does for the record. So I it hope does, that, but it doesn't. Like, it does, but it doesn't. I understand. Yeah, like it gives context. I'm sure, but it doesn't give explanation to somebody who doesn't Correct. already have understanding. Yep. Is there a distinction between a shard and a Dawn shard? Yes. Okay. Don't. I just assumed that they were the same thing. So, cool. This book also assumes... Oh, God. Hang on. No, it doesn't. Never mind. Don't. Nothing. Yep. Okay. Cool. Dawn shards. We know the book gives context that there are four. Okay. And that they are picked up like weapons and that they can be dropped off or otherwise, right? Because right. that's what the Night Brigade, of whom we haven't <laughs> talked about at all at this point, is chasing after Nomad Zellian 604. And, and Boyd the, held it. The Cinder King seems to understand that if he kills Nomad, he'd be able to pick up the weapon, right? Yes. Where am I getting well, that the wrong? From You're his perspective. Conflating things? From You're his conflating things. He You're seems, conflating details. Okay. okay. He he thinks that he can pick up the shard blade. He knows that he can. That is not the Dawn Shard. Okay. Those are not the same things as he relates them in the text. And as we understand, even from Nomad's perspective. Okay. Cool. There's a clarification. This no, is definitely totally. textual. This is not extra yeah. textual. Okay. I got you. Cool. I, I don't expect you so to give weapon, me anything extra textual. I understand. I know. I'm trying be. very hard. It is. <laughs> yes, this is strictly the only thing here is that the weapon that he believes that he can pick up is not the Dawn Shard. It is the Shard Blade. Okay. So I'm going to reiterate my admiration for the incredible tightrope act that Brandon Sanderson completed here to make a compelling story that felt fully fleshed out and understandable and satisfying without giving like without being too complicated but also understanding that there are so many more layers that I just have mm -hmm. no context for and have no understanding of and straight up missed somehow within this story. It is in, in talking to you uh, during this episode and beforehand, it is so impressive to me 
that I was able to have such a great time with this story while missing seemingly from our like from our conversations like half of what was talked about. I feel like you're missing 30% of the perspective, which is what's crazy to me that you enjoyed it as much as you did. I feel like 30 is the, about the right number okay. for the record, too. Because, okay, for perspective, and I'm, I also don't want to color this on your side, but there, was, there were a couple of different moments where I said, PJ, this book almost moved me to tears, which is new for a Sanderson book that's not a Stormlight novel. And Warbreaker. Warbreaker has its own place in my heart which is why it's number one but and and i just asked what you thought about the moment without you having any context or me providing any additional context and you're like it seemed like it was important and i went oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh no oh, there which was also like one. a good it's a good I think thing it was, it's i a think thing, it was chapter but, 18 i want to say yeah. where you're like that moved me to tear no it 28 was eight, it was 28 eight. It yep was, 18 yep. it was one that you no, said it's 28 you I, I have it documented it's 28 it's in our text messages it is i also noted it inside of our discord okay. i okay. know that it's 28 fine i know that what, it's 28 whatever factually. it is you said it was something that almost moved you to tears and i said i have no yep. idea what you're talking about i have no idea what that could I be know. <laughs> i know i know i know i know and it it that moment and i will talk about it in my own personal review of this that moment fundamentally shook me <laughs> in uh, truly like it, in my idea of this character and some other things that are going on in sort of the background. It makes me think about what Stormlight 5 is, what 6 might be, what like some other stories are within this. And it makes me question things, which is great. And I love that. And I love that about the story. But the fact that you got nothing <laughs> out of that moment is fucking fascinating because that makes the book for me like that is that's one of the moments that defines this book as a great book for me which is so cool that like you still really love it without that but that was chapter 28 that thing that happened 26 and 28 um is like one of the things that like changed this in my head from what I thought was like a seven and a half to like an eight story into an eight and a half, nine with some gaping flaws. But it's hilarious. The, emotionally, this story is a nine point five out of ten. Description wise, this is a four out of ten, which is just like brutal on my front. But that's neither mm -hmm. here nor there. OK, I there are so this is this is the rare circumstance in everything that we've done, partially because of the way that this is all written, that I cannot wait for it to be recontextualized to some idea to just see what you think about this book in post. Because here's the reality. It's named a half to nine for me as we've rated over the course of this. For you, I feel like it's like a nine, nine and a half. I genuinely think this book might be at ten. For you like this book might be perfect if you had the other context it for could yourself. be it Fair. could be and it, it could also be less in some degrees because you're also getting some of that other story that you otherwise wouldn't have and you might think about it like a nine because it's your first exposure to some of these things yada yada but um i still uh, i can only imagine this book going up in your estimation over time i believe it which is good i think like, but 
all of seemingly seemingly and like i might be wrong but seemingly some of your detractors for this book as as small as they might be our are are like benefits for me so like the the fact that i'm missing 30 percent of it yeah right fuck man (laughs) yeah right and my detractors are outside of this as well i i think that i've got more of i still have that meta concern that we talked about and Mm. this is also why the lost metal has downgraded in evaluation is because this book handled it much better than tlm could have dreamed of doing which is crazy especially because a i love julian like i love those characters but this did it better but still leaves my concerns on the table for demystifying things and how through explanation the story becomes so literal and his prose becomes so literal that it can lose the fun there's plenty of potential for him to do it right and i think that this is the best example that we have so far that he will but i'm still riding that either thin line between loving it intensely disliking it and my history with the man and conclusions of full series is a memory of light of which i did not enjoy notably because of his prose character arcs worked out loved loved the way that a lot of characters concluded but ah, anyway i can't i can't help but like sit on my own emotional thinking about all these different components anyway i want to bring it back to talk about the things that you do and don't understand <laughs> i want to make it out let's let's talk about auxiliary and your impression of auxiliary in general and his physical form as the shard blade and maybe blade who knows yeah i feel like i'm trying to think of exactly what made me understand it the best i I think it's probably a combination of yumi and maybe warbreaker and the collective understanding of how investiture works I guess, I guess like how to a certain extent, Kelsier is able to interact with Spook. Like there's fuck that. I I understand, but the mechanics feel similar in that way. Not the same granted, but the fact that there can be a spiritual connection to another being through investiture. I know there's differences. I understand. You're intending cognitive. That's what you mean. Just clarifying. Okay. Cool. I don't know. And for everyone else. (laughs) I'm going at it like the way that I understand it. Like I know. I know. The fact that I had some context to a spiritual connection to another being through this magic system previously rooted me within the system and didn't, didn't make me feel like this was coming out of left field in any way. Okay. If that makes sense, like it, it, it all totally. felt yep. above board in that sense. Um, yeah, I get that. I'm excited 
to learn maybe more about this person, what Auxiliary's name might have been, if it wasn't already Auxiliary uh, in its normal life and uh, what kind of person they were. We, I mean, I know contextually that they could be sarcastic. They could have affectation to their voice. They could have normal conversations. So I assumed that they were mortal at one point. They definitely, wow, that's tough. Or they weren't, again, they weren't this affectationless spiritual companion prior to but he's not, something he's not without affectation right like he actually has a personality throughout the whole he thing, has a personality right? like he, but i mean vocally vocal affectation like the, he speaks he flatly. vocal affectations i think okay the, i think he he's textually speaks flatly without affectation yes and I mean, he could be sarcastic, but, it, but that, that his comes from context right? clues, no. not from... Yes, yes, yes. He's, he is definitely he is definitely flat. There's no question. Mm-hmm. No question. But... The way he, he speaks creates... is robotic. But his ability to change the, the, the amount of sarcasm and the amount of embellishment conveys feeling... But it's not it, it's not his vocal inflection that does that. It's it's just his relationship with Nomad and their understanding of how they generally speak that allows him to convey different feelings and emotions. It's it it's nothing to do with speaking angrily or speaking forcefully or anything Correct. like that. He speaks yeah. the same always. And it's just their yes. relationship that allows nomad to decode that definitely so what i want to add context to some degree like varying we can can choose whatever we want is i would say that he is definitely decoding and bringing that down in a similar way in which have you seen moon the movie moon 2009 i have not really the duncan jones uh sam rockwell Nope. My God, PJ, that's in my top 25. Anyway, you'll love it. It's a science fiction movie. You'd adore it. Gertie, of whom is the the robot companion, right? Like a lot of AIs. It's affection or like it lacks affectation, but then it has like a robot face that gives you like a smile or a frown. (laughs) So like that's kind of the way that auxiliary feels is in the same way that Gertie feels where you're given context through whether or not he's speaking directly or he is speaking as the knight talking to his squire, which is obviously evocative of a joke or like there, there are a number of layers that are are worked in without having the emotional wherewithal or context of like being able to provide inflection mm-hmm. of which I think is one of Sanderson's best tricks textually that he's ever layered in. He is this is why I think that this book is so funny and clever is because of the way that he communicates humor through. It feels like a writing exercise to a certain degree, similar to the way that um, Yumi didn't have like augmentative swear words 
and the highly versus lowly kind of yes constraint. Yep, totally, I get which that. I, I think this is oh, smoother. Reminds me. This is cleaner, but it, it still feels like he's actively kind of putting a constraint on himself as a challenge in writing these stories. Following up on that, what did you make of all of the various moments in which Nomad said internally or externally storms and other comments there within? I mean... About the storms, equating the storms. I get that it is... Uh, I don't know if it's a, a general kind of expletive or augmenter um, within Stormlight Archive. Um, I'm not frustrated by it i'm not annoyed by it but it, it feels tired to me for like leaning heavily into different expletives in these fantasy worlds that we explore and it's fine i i don't feel one way or i don't feel strongly one way or the other about it but like it just feels tired i guess i don't know yeah i i don't disagree i actually find it, it's so weird. I find fantasy expletives so hard to land one that's good. And Storms... Storms isn't bad. To some degree. Yeah. Storms isn't bad. And I think that the other novels make it earn, earn it pl its place. So I don't feel like it's completely out of place. But I think here it feels out of place in the text without... Especially devoid of context. I feel like it never gets us to a point in which we understand. Knowing the series the is called the Stormlight context. Archives gave context to me but if i hadn't had that he does a good job of explaining that the storms on his home yeah. planet are cataclysmic in nature right so like i i i think i still would have understood it and i wouldn't have been like out of I, I wouldn't have been out of understood you I have context i have but like have it, doesn't, it doesn't fully it rationalize the swear yeah yeah it i mean yeah i was, I was curious i think i think i would have been able to pick it up given his explanation of the storms in comparison to the storms that he's experiencing on this world so yeah oh entirely entirely and i think i think that it earns its spot within his vocabulary but do we earn that vocabulary throughout the story and that's kind of the question and i feel like the answer that you're giving is kinda if that makes sense well but my yes i think the answer is yes okay. but i i'm kind of over the idea of it within fantasy in general like it, ju sure. it just feels okay. of it, it's something that you expect I, I've come to expect from every single fantasy novel I've ever read is, oh, what's going to be the cool, unique way of saying, oh, God, on this planet? Yeah. It's, That's fair. Yeah. I think it's especially vitriolic to some degree throughout the series. So I, I understand. I've got a little bit of like micro rage about it because like it is. And maybe maybe I can boil this down to it being related to the sort of Mormon-ish writing. I would never, not talking down about it, but like the idea that you can't square and that you're using equivalences a lot of the time, like shut the front door to say shut the damn door or whatever the hell. Like, 
just you're dancing around the same thing. You're saying different words to equivocate and mm-hmm. you can create equivocal words, but you also have to use them differently potentially than the way that they're used in the real world. In and, the same way that like it, it it violates the same standard that we were talking about with Puritanism earlier. It is too real worldy without actually having a place in the world in the moment. It, it occupies this strange space where we understand that the language that they're speaking probably isn't English. But yep. for whatever reason, through the translation, we're not translating their swear into our swears. We're giving it something different. Like it, 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 it's fine. I don't mind it. It's it, it's totally fine. But it, it's just, but like it, even it feels weird. Like it, it, it occupies a strange space for some reason within this sort of language translation thing that we're supposed to understand. But do gory dam and bloody dam feel wrong to you in the way that they're used ever? No. Right. It doesn't, and I, I, I guess I haven't interrogated why that might be, because it's still damn. And but it, I like, don't think it makes a difference. You it know doesn't. What I mean? Like I, doesn't. I think it's the utilization of the thing and the difference right. of culture, and like you're right. That yeah, I don't know. I don't know why, but for whatever reason, all of the like we use gods instead of God, or we use storm instead like it it, for fucking whatever reason (laughs) it grates on me and i don't know why it Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't seem logical that it doesn't sit well with me but it it just feels cliched and overplayed and like expected i i I don't I, i don't know totally get it I think you'll come around to it when you this is the one thing that'll like bleed out for you is I think you would come around to it when you read the this one archive. Totally this okay. one felt but better, in this book, this one felt better than most like this one felt better than most of what we've experienced in Mistborn. And I'm, I can't yep. even remember totally yep. the specifics, but for what like lots of concurrence storm yeah. storms felt unique and separate from this is a stand-in for gods or god like yeah, it, it right. felt born from the world that he was from Whereas, yeah to me, to me storms is so close to fuck like or it's it's between fuck and damn in my head but, yeah but 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 it has other it context it, but it, like, it doesn't technically occupy the same space as either of them no like, entirely it feels unique right, enough which is yeah which is good for the story yeah. yes yeah right it's not a replacement <laughs> or like a supplicant i yeah. feel like snobby for some reason saying it's the this. correct take it's the correct take one of the this is this is one of those like hot take soft take hot take cold take things inside of fantasy is a lot of people will be like do you like the terms of xyz and I don't think you have to. And I think that some stories do a great job of creating terms and making them make sense inside of the world. I think others use it as a shorthand to be like, oh, this is my unique swear. Uh-huh. So for instance, let me just give the briefest of comparisons. I played through Horizon Zero Dawn. It's the only game that I've played through in the last six months that I've finished. And I started the sequel 
Horizon Forbidden West. Horizon Zero Dawn had nearly no jargon like this. <laughs> and then all of a sudden in Forbidden West, they introduced shit like gears. This is so tough. And like all of these different components that are around mechanical engineering language as a <laughs> swear word. And I... I went from loving it to being so fucking cringe when mm-hmm. these characters just added this language that otherwise hadn't existed in the series prior, but also just in general, because it wouldn't have worked in the original, so it shouldn't have worked in the sequel. Yeah. That's an example to speak to your point about Storms. Storms feels like it does make sense and has context and like could work, but doesn't feel cringy in the way that a lot of stuff can. My example of one that works really well and my my favorite example of expletives is Firefly, where all of their oh, expletives yeah. are yep. Chinese. Mm-hmm. I don't even know what they were Tell saying. Us. Like I, I haven't I haven't dug deep enough to understand what exactly they were saying. But because of expression and context and everything else and clears. When they're swearing, it's Mandarin. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And like, totally agree. I I I loved that. Um, I fell asleep watching Firefly last night at three in the morning. Oh, so. really? What were you watching? Yeah, uh, the show or Serenity? Great train heist. Yeah. Ah, good. <laughs> it's a great episode. Yeah. So love like, Firefly. Th- th- there's a way to do it very very well. Yep. And like, I I, I feel like. Are there are there contemporary well-known fantasy novels or stories that just use non non-english words as their swears or just yeah, use I mean, swear words as we know them in but english many many use swear words in english i i mean like I can point to the two series that we're considering. Regardless, there will be the next two series that we cover, but the order is debated. The first law in Dark Tower. Dark Tower uses English swear words. Yeah. But it also has a couple of fantasy ones mixed in there. A couple, but it's predominantly the regular ones. And then the first law is almost entirely English swear words and also some like proper British shit. Like, which is great. (laughs) All right. Um, But yeah, there's there's a couple of like references of like, you know. To speak vaguely, like the gods be damned or whatever, but it's like it's in reference, but using the word that we would assume would make sense with it. So like the Mm -hmm. modifier is different. But yeah, I was just curious, curious on your thoughts on storms, because that's one of those one of those storm lady things that, you know, in a bubble. Totally, totally, Mm -hmm. totally fine with it. But just and uh, in comparison to all of the other fantasy things that we've experienced, especially from Brandon specifically, I like it the best. Hard to not. I like the best of of everything that we experienced from Branderson. Yeah. Even like the breath swear words don't work as well. Right. But just the idea of augmenting swear words is eye-rolly to me, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. And again, the only augmentation that I've read that works nearly perfectly or better for the most part is Red Rising in science fiction, at the very least. So far, I just recently started reading through Christopher Rocchio's books, The Sun Eater. Wonderful, lovely 
no series has made me go. We should probably cover that on the show, but I haven't read more than the first 30 chapters so far in a while. But really enjoying that. But yeah, like the the three series mentioned, like they all do wonderful jobs. So great tangent. Love a love a good tangent. <laughs> I want to pull it back to the conversation that's had between Wit and and use his name from Stormlight Sigzel or Nomad. What did you what make was the of name the I conversation gave that they had? Zixis. Zixis, yes. Zixis is what you had, what you had mentioned. Zix- what, what did you make, Sigzel? What did you make of that note or that beat between them? Because that's a that's a almost a full chapter of it like it, auxiliary summoning in wit. It's I understood that it was heavy. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel the weight as much. Fascinating. Okay. Like, it, does that does that make sense? Like, I it could totally I could tell it totally that it was clears. a very very heavy under like uh, commentary and conversation and even given the context i understood that there was things being said by wit that had never been discussed before or had been including his origin yeah like his yeah which is oh my fucking god (laughs) level of crazy shit i haven't reread it since you told me that wit was hoid so (laughs) maybe i should reread it and maybe i'd have a different understanding of it but yeah i could recognize the weight but i couldn't feel it okay again absolutely fascinating it's one of those points it's like that's one of the like top five top three moments in the book for me is that entire conversation that goes down there and yeah <laughs> it's crazy crazy there's mention throughout as auxiliary is talking to nomad about the restrictions the torment brings upon him there's the torment in and of itself but there's also the mention of oaths what are the oaths in your head so there's something early on it might be chapter one. It might chapter be one right mentions away. the oaths. I read, and, read some and, right away. It's and, first three pages. Yeah. And auxiliary auxiliary reacts with like what oaths? So there's something that kind of yeah. oath explicitly he says what oaths? Like that is his response in quotes exactly. He says what oaths? So it seems like something binding and also like Mm. it's not nebulous it's not it's something um tangible to the soul or to the mind or to the person that if it is broken it is gone like there's not a way to be flexible with your oaths is my understanding of it okay yeah to quote here I thought, Nomad shouted, that my oaths overrode that aspect of my torment, capital T. And Auxiliary replies, I'm sorry, Nomad, but what oaths? Yeah. Is I've that, a, is that not what I said? There's a giant question mark there. Okay. Well, in different <laughs> okay. contexts, it means different it's things. It's so fine. It's, it's fascinating. Fine. I understand. Yeah. Based on that conversation 
and the hmm. way that I'm uh, kind of extrapolating it, it seems like it is a condition. The oaths are a condition that can like be an unbreakable vow. Yeah. Is kind of what you're taking. And if it they're as. broken, yeah. they are not applicable. They do not. They're no longer bound to you, and you are not beholden to any of its boons or detractors. Okay. Yep. All right. Dig okay. that. It's so neat. <laughs> there are so many goddamn questions. Totally. I I agree. <laughs> so the final bit that I kind of want to talk about before we maybe talk about the secret projects on the whole and success and what that looks like there is about the shard blade itself and the utilization as aux as this sort of omni tool. How do you feel about that presence in the story as far as it goes for solving problems and issues? So I I felt like there was enough descriptions and explanations for me to not feel like it was just unexplained magic, I guess. You know, it, it felt... Hmm. It, it, the, I don't know if that's a that's a bad term to use. I understand. I want to I want to actually like clarify a little bit. I never felt like it was unexplained magic. No, I didn't. But I'm I never question did. whether or not it felt like it was quantified or like well defined enough for you. Because again, I want to clarify. It feels like it became an omni tool, like a a convenient it, plot device to some degree. Yes, yes, but there. Early on, there's the situation where he asks about how heavy of a, of a piece of metal Ox is able to turn into without tapping super far into their, like, breath reserves. Investiture, yeah. Um, well, yeah, we'll talk about that moment. Yeah, without yes, negatively affecting Continue. their reserves. He says their without using... Reserves, and he gives the explanation like, "No, I'm always using, I'm always using investiture, but I'm going to take this and kind of augment the question and answer it in that way." That made it feel less less superhero-y, I guess, because mm. I okay. from that point onward, I always understood that he was sacrificing his skip ability, I guess. To spending mana. Yeah, like there was there was a tangible expenditure. Sure. In order to produce this desired effect. Yeah. Okay. Whereas if that didn't exist, it would have felt unfair and totally like so he okay i i want to layer in some of the the things that the text say right just based mm-hmm. to try to like alleviate or like add to the complexity here he says that it costs investiture and speed specifically to make ox do something that he doesn't know or cannot internally build out the schematic for in his head right so like it costs more for ox to become a giant shield than it does for, you know, a pair of cuffs that he's seen before. It doesn't expend investiture for him to change that shape, but it does for something he hasn't imagined. Did that have any impact on your thoughts? 
No, because it made sense. Because like it explicitly says if he's done it a couple times, it wouldn't take as much of a toll. Oh, yeah, all good. All good. Yeah. I just wanted to add that like layer of clarification. Like, there, like, there's that's really a the... sort of processing power. I, I sort of thought of it like a cache. Like in not like, wrong. Yeah. An uncached website loads slower than a cached one. Mm-hmm. Is kind of the yep. way that I rationalized it. Yeah. I totally get that. Can't talk about it. But that's fine. Appreciate appreciate the ideas and appreciate the thoughts on that's, that. That's the particular. way it was, it, it, at least in my no, head, it is. that's the it, way it was it described. Is. That's the way that it, and it, it made sense yep. to me. Yeah. Completely. I don't completely, know if that contradicts or, or goes in line with anything that has been said otherwise in other books. But I will argue that very intentionally, Brandon Sanderson never contradicts but expands constantly. And the question is always... To me, at the very least, one of the questions is always, where does this end? Because limitations are more interesting than powers, which is one of his own magical rules. Limitations mm-hmm. are far more interesting than anything else. So, yeah, but we're also but, dealing with someone who seems to have access to something that is directly connected to not not uppercase c but maybe uppercase c connected to the previously split god of the universe so like that power seems hard to limit tough Mm. i can't respond that's fine without without treading on dangerous levels but i speculation is great and i appreciate that as we potentially cover Stormlight in the future, we think about that and talk about it. So, cool. Did mm-hmm. you have anything else that stood out to you instead of the story? I, I think I'd mentioned, actually, this is off air. I didn't, we haven't talked about it yet, but the, the sort of accumulation of plate that we see eventually become referenced once in the end. I think it's in like chapter 47 or 48 as shard plate. Did you have any thoughts as it related to that as it came throughout the story? You seem to make more of a deal of it than I did in my head. I I just kind of assumed it was the armor-based equivalent of the shard blade. Like his ability to turn into or turn auxiliary into bracers with a connected metal thing that that is defensive versus a crowbar versus like so you're saying I spoiled you? That's no, what you, that's what you got. I'm just kidding. It's a bit. It just it it didn't create a distinction for me in a uh, tangible way. Like I just assumed okay. it was the form that auxiliary was taking, like shard blade versus shard plate, like offense versus defense is kind of where my brain went. Okay. Excellent. Okay. All right. I want to round this out with any other thoughts that you might have before we talk about the secret projects on the whole and sort of our, our conclusions here within. Anything else that you thought about the story? Anything else that you want to bring up that you enjoyed or appreciated? Oh, I, before we get here, or maybe as a part of this, I have to clarify, we talked about this off air. 
my other than the description biggest point of dislike that I think will remain truly within just this novel. I'd be mad if it goes outside of it, but I intensely dislike the BEU description of powers and abilities. Mm. The, okay. the strict measurement gets to a point of nuance and clarity that I do not want inside of this world. I and universe. <laughs> I didn't mind it, for the record, I did not mind it within the capacity that it was used here. However, if I get a single fucking story that says that we're 10% BEU short of being able to skip jump to the next universe and we're going to miss out because we didn't catch the sun rays from XYZ, I'm going to be so grumpy. I'm going to be so grumpy. Okay. I I don't know. I don't, I don't know the context of... Roshar or how yeah. breath works there, but I saw it as a unit of measurement for the amount of investiture that an individual human on a specific world contains. And like I I likened it to Warbreaker. I I think the reason why I liked That's it so much intent. was because yeah. of Warbreaker and because of mm-hmm understanding that breath can be collected and I don't want to say hoarded, but multiple breaths allow you to do additional things as the amount of breath is accumulated. So I think it felt natural to get to a later progression of the universe where a unit of measurement is needed and breath feels very base. Like it, it is a, a tangible base measurement that allows you to compare everything else against it. So I had no the problem difference. with it, but yeah. Go ahead. I, I just want to levy just like an, an, an emotional difference potentially for an understanding of where I'm coming from without some of the context but of like my entire readerly mind, because it is outside of the Cosmere, it's outside of other things. Like this is all of my experience in especially adoring hard science fiction. PJ, I read fantasy as a child and as a teen, but as an adult, like 16 to 24, I only read hard sci-fi. I did not read a fantasy novel again until... By God, what was the most recent? What was the first fantasy novel that broke me out? I think it might have been The First Law. I think The First Law was the first fantasy novel that I'd read in a long time. And then Mistborn and then Stormlight. So, like, I went from loving fantasy as a kid to not reading it for a long time and just submerse myself in hard sci fi. So, all that to say, my issue or discrepancy or problem or like thing that i want you to think about as i think about it or at the very least understand where i'm coming from is that when we read red rising i don't need the gallons or the the cubic meters of helium three that we use to get from planet to planet oh, i don't but need I the measure on it <laughs> you don't i do like i i would love that I like that's the I think I I understand that we have a very different way of reading things but I would love that unit of measurement and that 
granularity of detail in the technological world that we're living within. I would love to know the units of helium-3 that we need to have in order to get from Mars to Jupiter. But does it provide for the story so as to equate anything beyond us being able to go from point A to point B? Like, what's its utility to the plot or to the characters or to anything that's going on? I think it's just, it, it's not, it's not plot, but it is background. It is world to building clarify, for me. There are a number of stories that I think do this very well. I'm in love with and always have been with Stephen Baxter's entire Zeely sequence. He defines everything. He is very clear cut about the whole thing. You know how you know the distance of the Fotino birds and the way that they eat up stars and the distance and energy that that produces and the supernovas that that cause that fuels the waves that ride people to the edges of the galaxy. You understand all of these things as a part of the story. I know these things. I love these things inside of the stories in which they feel like they are omnipresent and relevant. This feels in this story like an extraneous detail that's just tucked in where it doesn't need to be in the okay. same way that it would in red rising does that make sense so like it is it is a fun to have but an unnecessary thing in the larger cosmere in this story this is the only one right now that i can mentally argue that beus reticle than units make sense because of the dawn shard and this teleportation potential what I don't want to see happen is that expand out to other things. I'm I'm pro. I love hard sci-fi PJ. I want to make that very clear and this very clear to the listeners. This is not good hard sci-fi. This is so, weak as shit hard sci-fi. Okay. But if you are looking at a military engineer and they're they're discussing how efficient some fantastical tank is like this uses 12 BEUs per hour versus our normal tank which uses 27 like I, I like that it gives a tangible a foundation of reference is okay yeah and that's important however I think I think in general this is a bad thing for the okay. Cosmere on the whole because the magic systems are nowhere near equivalent. And so to add an equivalency ratio. But the, shouldn't, shouldn't they going be to, equivocatable? Shouldn't you be able one, to equate the the amount of power that a Mistborn has versus the amount of breath that they're equival, equival, equivalently using on a minute wrong. by minute basis? What I, what I think that this is going to do, though, is devolve into something that is ultimately uninteresting to read, right? And so there there is, like, interesting from a wiki perspective and a physics perspective, of which I agree with and I think is fundamentally not a bad thing to have. However, there's also a enjoyable to read and, like, proceed through that I I think that and maybe the reality is, is that I just need to like let you loose on, on Stormlight and then we can like fundamentally disagree from a fantasy perspective. This is crazy. The world's so cool, but like, I don't know that, that once, 
now that we've bridged that gap or Sanderson has chosen to bridge that gap, he is choosing to fight a battle that I don't think he can win outside of the fact that he has pure momentum behind him. That's fair. That's Mike Wong. Anyway, that that's like a large. It's a systems complaint. That's why I don't like BEUs. So I, I think that BEUs spell the death of interest from my perspective, because, again, I can go read any other science fiction story that I think would do it better than this mm-hmm. will. Okay. And keeping it a little bit fantastical, a little bit mysterious, would be better in the long run for him. He can explain it all in the end, but to start to quantify and measure it and try to create physics equations in anti-investiture and positive investiture just leads into this quandary of like, yes, it's cool that you invented your system and that you did this whole thing. Love that for you. However, our own system is more entertaining and people have used it to further extent than the thing that you invented. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That said, when you get into that level of nitty gritty. Again, you, that's no, why no, this no, is an no, eight and just, a half. Just, just hear me out. Just hear me out. Okay. All right. When you get to that level of minutiae, you get into a level where we don't know our universe yet. And if, if a fantasy writer is able to create a universe that's more fleshed out on that quantum level than our universe is that makes for some really really interesting interactions it does it it fundamentally does so i i don't disagree with that there there is an entire realm that the books don't really talk about for the most part which is the spirit realm so far as we understand so there's we know realmatic theory, right? We know physical, we know cognitive pretty well, and, but we don't really know spiritual. Mm-hmm. And that is the this is without talking about Stormlight at all and things that go on there within. But so far as you and I have read, so far as you have read, the spiritual realm is sort of that link that I think truly can contain and maintain the interest later in the series i think that is the way that you make this interesting in a way that no other series would be able to maintain if it is not properly utilized i will degrade in my opinion with these books over time not the early books because i think the early books do a good job of representing the story the original mistborn trilogy is excellent i think the first two books of stormlight are fucking incredible the third is awesome the fourth is where my qualms began and the lost metal did not do anything to dissuade that this book didn't do anything to dissuade that they were better versions of those things but <clears throat> we're we're dancing in a razor's edge now of and this is this is a meta thing right like i'm i don't weigh this against the way that the lot that the sunlit man itself is perceived as a novel I weigh it against the sort of collective idea of this as a series in a universe, right? And the way that people interact with it. All right. So we've talked a lot about all the Stormlight connections. There's one big obvious connection. We even talked about the Elantris connection with the Jar Door. 
let's talk about the other one that is underneath the crust of the city, which is this population of Skadrians that's examining worlds and measuring them for the war to come, potentially, or the conflict that's present, as well as the Silver Light Accords that have been struck, which is fascinating. Mm -hmm. I didn't get any understanding out of Silver Light Accords. Maybe I should have. I don't know if I should have. I didn't. No. No. Okay. Cool. But I was kind of genuinely surprised that we didn't get a description of any of the Scadrians or potentially any Chandra that might have been <laughs> described within this bunker. Like I was really expecting to get familiar descriptions. Don't we get a little bit of skin tone that differentiates the the group? Like it, it, the reference, maybe, for me but not is not in the way that I intelligible because you don't really know that like what Sigzel is versus what he isn't. Okay, all right, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I love the Scotrian's inclusion here. For the record, this is actually to me this is fundamentally way better than the way that tress resolves itself and it totally kind of just like, totally completely agree i yeah like, it, it just kind there of like are gives so you many ideas. points like the beginning of frugal wizard and the ending of tress that are kind of weirdly analogous to this story but done right. so much better <laughs> right it's yeah. as though he was in the same frame of mind when he wrote these four books yeah yeah Totally. Get it. Got this weird thought. Is there any world in which you imagine Sanderson releasing a secret fifth novel as a bonus and he just throws it in? Hmm. Oh, it'd be pretty... I don't know about fifth, but writing a parallel Mistborn Era 1 or even prequel to Mistborn Era 1 could be really, really cool. Okay. All right. That's fine. I I just like in the back of my head, I've always I've had this inkling since this book came out that it's like, wait, he said that he had written four full novels and most of a novel that would be YA. And he wasn't going to include that in this. But part of me has been like, I can't help but think that he might just put out like another thing just because it might be kind of secretive about it because this is the secret projects. So not not 100%. This is a conspiracy mm-hmm. theory for sure. But what would it be then? I don't know, man. Like entirely I, like separate it, or um what, what do you mean what it would be? Like Tress was not predicted on in any kind of way. Yumi was not predicted. The Sunlit Man is not predicted. Uh, so mm-hmm. So just something disconnected from anything else. But Why not? Surprising. Yeah. Could be, be Cosmere. Could be a novella. Like, it could be anything. I don't know. Yeah. Just in the back of my head, at this very moment, I'm thinking It'd be pretty at the cool. end of the rainbow, there might be another surprise. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, we'll wait it out regardless. Okay, cool. So, we've talked... The Scadrians. We talked about the story in the whole. We're very happy with the way this all went collectively for kind of like similar and different reasons. 
But the final thing that I want to talk about was surrounding the secret projects on the whole. We're done with them, as far as we know, <laughs> given the conspiracy theory that I just levied. But what did you think of this Kickstarter, this four book project, this whole thing that he pulled off and the team pulled off? It's insane. It's impressive. Mm-hmm. Like there, there are there were a decent number of delays and hiccups and things. And even considering them, this feels like an untenable, lofty, insane goal that somehow they pulled off. Like Brandon in and of himself, it's insane that he was able to write so many words and so many pages and actually create four distinct beautiful stories like all of them are very good we give frugal wizard shit for being like our least favorite of it but it's still a cohesive intelligible interesting story it's artistic for sure chat gbt could never (laughs) like a collective eight a collective eight out of ten, I would say. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yep. Yeah. You're you're weighing in, down a number of nines. A fast in average, but I understand. In average, in average I, eight I out of say, ten for novels is pretty fucking impressive. Yes. To do it in yeah. one year, yeah, is absurd. Unprecedented. Remarkable. Incredible. And admirable. Yeah, for sure. And no part of this envy uh, this Kickstarter has felt cheap. No. God. Like, yeah. Like, I I spent the least you could, I think, to get the physical books. You spent the most you could on the project, right? Like there, there were, yes, there I, were lower the tiers than version. I got yep. that just got the digital copies, I believe. Yep. Or just the physical. Yep. Y- was there? There was one that would give you just the physical. Yeah. It was like 50, yeah, but I, everything else I was mean, like bundled way. at 60. So it made no sense yeah, per book yeah, to like, it yeah. was, I, I spent $250 and got yeah. th- four of the most beautiful books I've They're ever fucking seen in my yeah. life. I, I mean, yeah. I love the leather-bound books of the the first Stormlight, Stormlight book. What's the name again? I, do, I own it. I have it signed. You haven't read it. Yep. I don't right. remember the the way of kings. The, yep. the way of kings. The way of kings is probably the most beautiful, conventionally, like the most conventionally beautiful books that I own. In the in the way that you're just judging it based on the cover, ironically, but including the internals and the all of the art included within the secret project books along with the foil on all of the covers and the the dynamic sort of popping artwork on the external and every 
couple dozen pages internally. Like it, it's insane, man. These are so fucking pretty. I I never would have thought that I'd own such a collectible piece of art to finish it off with this red and black and gold beauty of a hardcover book is breathtaking. Like I, I don't feel deserving of something so artistic. The sunlit man's finish is in fucking credible. I can't help but be the smallest bit. I love it. To to be fair, I think that this was worth every penny. I've done the whole thing, right? I've done the mm-hmm. I, I've got three months of rewards left and we'll see how those shake out. But I can't imagine at this point being disappointed with a single month because everything has always been a step above what I fucking finish. Right. Like when I ordered, I genuinely thought that I was going to get a shirt every other month. And it was just going to be like a nerdy piece of media that I would like just hang in the closet and whatever. Instead, I've gotten incredible bookends. I've gotten this travel bag that I genuinely needed and wanted. You brought it to I've my gotten, house. <laughs> yeah, I literally brought it to your house to like show you the whole thing because it's no, incredible. No, you brought it to these, use and then you showed it to well, me. Uh, yeah, you, like you were right, genuinely I know. using I it for I your like fucking months long yeah. travel. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I fucking loved it and I fucking needed it. I got the the Warbreaker shit, of which is easily my favorite box, right next to the Cosmere box. I'm buying uh, it with, if it goes with on the sale. coasters <laughs> and with the Nightblood letter opener that are just awesome. There was the the only one that I didn't like, which is just because I didn't love the books, and and that's not a me thing. Like it's still very cool, but the the Cytonic reward was very neat with the model. I'll end up selling that at some point, I'm sure. But that was just because I didn't love. The, the book in that moment and that's fine that's the one-off that isn't cosmere related which is a okay but everything else was worth every single fucking penny and i am so shocked that that was the case and it exceeded my expectation in every estimation mm-hmm. so i am very happy with my purchase i like am ecstatic about the quality of the books that are received in the audiobooks and everything else i don't need a secret fifth surprise to like feel rewarded i just think that that would be the icing or the cherry on top that i would imagine someone like dragon feels like something they do yes right it it feels like something that they would do they don't have to and i will still be very happy but ultimately like between this experience experiencing the four like the four core yeah shipments and then vicariously experiencing the other eight of them or six so far through you plus like dragon steel con despite like there are shortcomings that we kind of pointed out but that has nothing to do with their decision making like Mm -hmm. dragon steel as a company put on the best possible convention that they could thinking of all of the smallest details that they thought relevant and there are sort of logistical issues with the space that they booked for it but that has nothing to do with them. 
Like they they have a very very narrow attention to detail. They they do and but also like the sort of luxury of a great number of people pointing out the breadth of what they need to do. So I I'm admire impressed. I'm I I'm impressed by and I admire their attention to detail while putting on experiences for their fans. Yeah, I am literally, you can't see this, of course, because we don't do video, but if you could hack into the non-video video feed, you'd see that I am literally wearing the Dragonsteel shirt at the moment. <laughs> you are. I am very much wearing the 2022 Dragonsteel shirt, and I adored the secret projects each individually, even... Even Brugal Wizard, it's own right. If not for anything else, the art in particular, I I got to enjoy inside of the rest of the story and all of its faults and warts in between. Um, every other story was worth more than what I paid, and the books themselves are some of the most gorgeous. Like PJ said, books that I own, mm-hmm. I have first editions of a number of Dark Tower books that include incredible art. That are not quite as gorgeous as these are, yeah. which is wild. I mean, obviously, it's they're insane. a couple of decades old. So, like, the technology, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But still, just mm. nuts inclusions on my shelf. I re- do not regret any dollar spent on this whole thing. No, none, none whatsoever. But also, Wizard, for all the shit that we give it. I would never classify as a bad book. It is bad in comparison to everything that I've read from Brandon Sanderson. It didn't, it didn't meet the expectations that I had, but it was still a well thought out story with flaws. Yes, but it was well written. It was well dialogued. And it was a very fun story to read. So even though we're comparing it to Diamonds, that doesn't make it a standalone bad story, I think. I do just want to make the smallest note. I do. I do think that it was not... I would rate it lower. (laughs) I understand that your expectation is one thing. But I would... I would put it in a lower echelon of story because it is incomplete in a number of regards. I think I it's one of the crucial. worst books we've read on this show. It is the worst book. It's we've the read worst on book show. we've read on the show, unless you count. Yeah. What the one Stephen King short story that was about the 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 dog that gets eaten by an alligator? Like, is that what you're looking at? Yeah. Sixteen pages. Okay. Cool. All right. Low key. The That's worst the story one thing is that one that might that old man that might I yeah. I don't know I had a lot of good things to say about that story let's be you real. fucking liked that story I did not liking I it. did I yeah. liked also I think we had a, giving you shit a lot for, more for that being the intro to Stephen I, King that I, you gave me I also like I still <laughs> sit in my own like shit thinking about that being my intro that I gave you because I was like, it's a free to read story that anyone can check out and that'll be fun. That'll be a good intro to our podcast. It'll be like, oh, hey, you can just Google it. Go look it up. Fuck me. But yeah, <laughs> you had good. No one else just talked about that. It made sense. I tried. 
Nonetheless, even despite it being one of the worst things in my head that we've covered on the show, it's still a remarkable work of art. It's still incredible. Mm -hmm. I do not regret the purchase. No. Of that novel in particular, the art, the printing, the whole way that it looks, everything else. So, yeah. None whatsoever. Despite it being the worst thing in my head that we've talked about on the show, it's still (laughs) worth it. It's still good. It's still it's still a ride, nonetheless. Right. Cool. All right. Well, with that, thank you so much for listening to our show. <laughs> that, that's a transition. Fuck. What else are we gonna no, do? No, no, you're good. You're good. You're good. You're good. You're totally good. Right. Listeners, oh, be sure to check out <laughs> all of our stuff on social media. Um <laughs> Next month, we'll be chatting about (laughs) Salem's Lot by Stephen King. This is going to be our last scheduled short board thus far. I'm very excited to read this novel. I have so many many things to say about this for so many different reasons, and I'm so excited to talk to PJ about this. Yeah, this is going to be... relates to my high school experience. The second story by Stephen King that I've ever read. Yeah. Well, all right. Let's clarify. <laughs> I did let you read or listen to with me in the car the first chapter of The Gunslinger. That's so true. We'll, we'll dissuade any thoughts otherwise. But you got mm-hmm. one two-hour chunk of The Gunslinger. That's true. It's very good. <laughs> in case you're curious. <laughs> all right. So beyond that, make sure that you check us out. You can you can find a number of other things inside the show notes, including our schedule, Patreon, other episodes. You can also find our other shows, including Catacomb Party, our D&D actual play. You can find Books and Baddies, the lovely romance-associated or adjacent podcast in which we talk about, well, in which a number of folks talk about romance and the way that it impacts their lives and the way that they think about those novels daily as well as the main feed show in which we are covering a series over a long lens of time. That's what you're looking at there. Perfect. All right. With that, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.